Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. Um, we are heading into Chinese New Year tonight. Uh, the Lunar New Year. So this is a good day to talk about transitions. David Crosby died this week. He was part of the generation of musicians that created that unique alloy of folk and rock that became so popular in the late 1960s as a founding member of the Birds and of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and then Nash and Young. His sound was instantly recognizable to a generation. This week, so many of us revisited his music and old memories. Classical music is timeless art. Popular music is time-bound, and very specifically so. Listen to this. Okay, so I, I I don't know about you. That sound takes me to another place and another time. Despite the war in Vietnam, the enormous divisions in our country in those years, it was a more innocent time and place. And despite the tough lyrics of some of his music, these songs reflect that innocence. It, it It's music that you know, sort of loses its moorings in this revanchist post-Trump backlash to racial reckoning Christian nationalist age. Um, The music and the lyrics and certainly Crosby's life with its drugs and jail time, its failed families, its professional ups and downs, these were complicated or honest or tough or reflective of the fullness of human life. Excuse me. But for me, the music embodied that sense among baby boomers that we were all part of the same thing. And therein lies the innocence. Because today's divisions leave us feeling like we are not at all in the same boat. We we lack the um, healing power of that kind of belonging. Instead, it, it seems like we feel besieged just when there's the chill coming of a new and difficult season. Look, when baby boomers first show up, um, the generations that preceded us, they didn't stint. They raised taxes. They built new schools. They built new subdivisions. They built new universities, new highways to connect us. And what followed was the greatest creation of wealth in the history of the world. And Boomers hold most of this wealth. Today, it's not uncommon for those that followed Gen X, Gen Z, and millennials to wonder that whether they will ever, whether they will ever have the comforts their parents had. And, and they look at climate change and they're angry with boomers for their selfishness. 
<clears throat> excuse me, I don't know what it is with my throat today. Um, but look, time is not on the boomer's side anymore. I'm one of its youngest members, and you know, I now get Medicaid coverage. So maybe this, maybe this explains some of our politics. We now have a large portion of the baby boomer generation returning to the idea of belonging, but this time without the innocence. Um, instead of a place for all of us, they want membership to be exclusive. And in some ways, it was always this. Our house, the one with two cats in the yard where life used to be so hard. You know, when I listen to that song now, I don't hear a song about everyone's house. Uh, and, and it's only because our progress, because of our progress, the progress since that song was written, that we can now see more clearly on the cusp of a truly diverse and interracial democracy with real shared power. When we revisit that song, it doesn't sound like it's about all of us anymore. For people like me, that is a sign of hard fought progress for others. It is terrifying. So now we have um, the debt ceiling. It's unthinkable that America would default on its debt. Doing so would mean financial ruin for tens of millions. It would end the dollar's position as the world's reserve currency, increasing costs on everything. So increased inflation, driving markets sharply down. Um, but as the baby boomers prepare to leave the stage, they're threatening to blow it all up. The financial system, the idea of equality, democracy itself. Now, look, to be sure, this is not what the whole of the baby boomer generation wants. Um, there are plenty of people like you, like me, who are determined to pass on a better world and a nation fit for those who will follow us. But very little explains our current turmoil quite so clearly as the passing of power now underway from America's largest generation. Um, it's really interesting and really frightening. And I, I sort of hear this not um, so much as a desperate attempt to cling to power, but maybe something else maybe an effort to stave off mortality. It's really worth thinking about. And it's the subject of a fascinating new bo uh, book from um, one of the Washington Post's uh, most interesting authors. And he's going to join us uh, right in, in just a minute here. But let me tell you, Phil Bump, who we've talked to before on this show, is a national correspondent for the Washington Post. And he has a newsletter called How to Read This Chart, which is fabulous, fun, and thoughtful. It's, um, he's really one of the best journalists uh, who, uh, who use data to tell us stories. It's really quite remarkable. We're going to take our first break here so that I have more time with him when we come back. And when we come back, Phil is going to join us, and we're going to talk about his fascinating new book, The Aftermath. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. 
Okay, everybody, welcome back. And as I told you right before the break, we are now joined by Phil Bump, the national correspondent for The Washington Post, who uh, whose new book, The Aftermath, will appear in stores in, what, two days, Phil? That's it, on Tuesday. Well, I, I got an advanced copy, and I urge everyone who's listening to get this book. Um, Phil, thank you for writing it and for writing it the way you did, um, what you always do with data and charts that you take the time to help readers fully understand. Uh, thank you. It's kind of you to say. I appreciate it. You, you, so you, you wrote, and i just read you part of your own book. Um, it's the thesis of this book. Um, the fears of the boom, the downward shift in population center of gravity, the political fevers, the frustrations of younger Americans overlaps and explains many of the country's seeping fissures. A generation used to accruing and defending its power through sheer scale is watching that power crumble. We've seen generation tensions before, as when the boom emerged, but we're now living through something exceptional, a decline not of the Spartan civilization, but of the Roman one. We're living through the historic disruption of the American empire. So, I agree. Yeah, I mean, you, but then you go on to, to, to really talk about it. So let's dive in, because I... I sure. As a member of that generation, I feel like the fish in that story, you know, two fish are swimming north, they encounter a fish swimming south, the fish swimming south says, how's the water? And the other two look at each other and go like, what's water, right? right. And the baby boom generation is just so obvious to me and to so many people. It, it It's worth reminding everybody how transformative all of that was. Will you talk about that? Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. So obviously, as you just articulated, one of the main points of the book is that the baby boom was so big, it really both reshaped the country necessarily, but also set expectations for boomers themselves in terms of the ways in which the country would respond to them. So when we when we talk about the baby boom, obviously people are aware that there are a bunch of babies who were born after World War II. The common you know narrative is soldiers came back and a bunch of kids, hence the baby boom. That's not really true. Uh, that you know there was an element of that. There were a lot of components that sort of merged at the same point in time to lead to this huge growth in the number of children being born. And when I say huge. You know, 140 people or 140 million people lived in the United States in 1945. Over the next 20 years, 76 million kids were born. So more than 50% of the existing population was born as new births over the course of the next two decades. And if you think about that, if you think about all of a sudden, if that, you know, that's equivalent to if the United States were at this point in time to just suddenly add 165 million people over the course of the next two decades, right? You know, just through childbirth alone. And so just think about what that means. You have all these young people and all of a sudden you have, you don't have enough schools for it. You don't have enough resources for it. You have to, you have to do all of these investments in just tending to this massive population that's just emerged. And then you can see they become all, they have all the schools, they have all this tension. Of course, marketers are salivating, you know, the diaper industry booms later, uh, you know, 17 magazine is a good exemplar of the ways in which uh, there is a new catering to this demographic. And, you know, this is happening at the same time that television starts advertising and, and really in, uh, uh, leveraging this massive population. And so you can see that as that progresses, as this the metaphor that's used is that a python swallows a pig and the pig has to work its way through the python, as this particular pig, not to be disparaging, is working its way through the American python, it changes everything in its path and everything in its way. 
And then that leads us to this moment where for the first time, there's another big generation that's challenging them for attention and power in a way they're not used to. Yeah, I mean, and the, the data that you show is absolutely fabulous on all of this. But um, leaving, this is another point you make, which is, I thought, fascinating. Um, as the generation, the baby boom generation has certainly peaked, right? It's not going to get any bigger. Um, it can only get smaller because all we can do now is die. Um, but our, the, the generation's power is still there. They have, I mean, that's where the money is, right? All of that. And that causes some tensions, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, power is obviously measured in a lot of different ways. Um, the three things that I really look at in the book are economic power, cultural power, and political power. And to think about political power, first, obviously, there's a disproportionate number of baby boomers and baby boomer voters that affect what elections and the election results look like. Uh, that's actually started to shift somewhat. Uh, I think it's worth noting. Uh, but economic power is important, too, right? So baby boomers uh, came at a, a, a came of age at a time when the American economy is very strong. They were able to purchase homes. Uh, they have been able to hold on to those homes, see them accrue in value. We see a lot of people now whose retirements are predicated on home values. And so we see, even if we're not talking about the baby boom as this one homogeneous group of politically identical people, which it's not, obviously there's a lot of diversity politically in the baby boom, we still see a disproportionate uh, tendency towards protecting those other forms of power. Cultural, not as exciting, but economic, right? Doing their best to preserve economic power, that then has political repercussions and other repercussions in the United States. So that's a, that's a good example of a way in which the boom power is manifested not simply by virtue of, you know, who happens to be Speaker of the House. You, I thought it was interesting that you identified seven traits of baby boomers and then showed how millennials aren't just younger versions of the same. So can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. So there are, uh, when we think about the difference between boomers, and I look at millennials because millennials really are nearly as big a generation in terms of numbers. So when boomers were the age 40, uh, there are about as many millennials now as there were boomers then. Of course, the population is much larger, so millennials are a smaller percentage of the population. But when you look at the differences between those groups, you see a number of different ways in which they differ. Uh, they obviously age is, you know, uh, the one to jump at to first of all. Uh, but the younger generations are also much less heavily white. Now, the baby boom began at a period when America was still restricting immigration after the immigrate after the backlash to immigration that we saw about a century ago. And so, you know, the average immigrant when the baby boom arrived was somebody's grandparent. Uh, and over time, after the boom ended, actually shortly after that, immigration laws were loosened. We saw a big influx of people coming from Asia and Central America and Mexico. Uh, that really reshaped the demography of the United States to some extent. Uh, and as a result, we have a very uh, diverse group of younger Americans that isn't the same as older Americans. So that's, a, that's I think, the most important way in which they differ. But also things like younger people are less likely to participate in institutions or less likely to be members of political parties. They're less religious. Uh, they are more likely to be immigrants or have immigrant parents. Uh, they're uh, better educated as a general rule. They're more likely to live in cities. All of these things overlap with both political and cultural trends, uh, which helps, I think, explain some of, the, some of the tension. Yeah, and people who are regular listeners to this show, their ears would have um, caught, you know, um, better educated, more diverse, live in cities. Um, I'm not sure about the religious part, but but at least those three would have been a signal 
um, for a political divide that um, that we talk about a lot here. Right. Yeah. No. Exactly. So, right. but, you know, the, the book obviously goes into the ways in which that overlaps. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's. I guess I want to turn to that. I think it's. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I recognize that I'm making short shrift of fascinating stuff in the book, but you know we can't only have so much time, and it's just there was a lot of stuff in your book. Um, you, you, I thought the part on the post, um, Mitt Romney, <clears throat> you know, he ran for president against Barack, he lost, and the Republican Party did this autopsy, right? Because they said, "Wow, we can't win unless we broaden our party." And you talk about that. Can you want to spend a moment on that? Yeah, it's fascinating. This this moment in 2012, where the Republican Party is pretty confident they could continue as normal. I mean, obviously, we've been through the Tea Party Revolution. The Tea Party Revolution was revitalization, but if you speak to people who studied it, they recognize it was really about America's changing demography and a sense of uh, the, of this power shift that the book describes. Uh, but the Republican Party sits down, says, OK, we lost this race. We see that Barack Obama won 2008, 2012. We probably need to do a better job of reaching out to people who are not white, uh, you know, expand uh, our appeal. And that lands shortly after the election and the Republican Party elevates it and says, OK, here's what here's what we ought to do. And then 2014 happened. 2014, there was a big surge in uh, migrants, uh, unaccompanied minors, children coming from Central America uh, to the United States. And that was the year that Black Lives Matter started. And so all of a sudden, you have immigration and race are very, very salient issues in American politics. And Donald Trump swoops in and leverages that instead of the Republican Party doing its best to try and expand to encourage more people who weren't uh, simply white conservatives to participate in the party. Uh, you have uh, them tripling down on that demographic and, and Donald Trump really demonstrating that there was still a way to wring more power out of uh, that existing group of voters. And that has sort of defined everything since. Well, yeah, I mean, if throw, they threw aside uh, the idea of growing a big tent for something that's an antebellum view of America, government <clears throat> controlled by white Christian men, I guess, like it was before the Civil War or in the Jim Crow South. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, the, <clears throat> I, I realize that, you know, we've seen in the in week of the 2020 election, we've seen sort of this fascinating, even in 2022 election, even after the midterms, there was this new, like, oh, we should do an autopsy, and so that's where we are. <laughs> you know, one of the things they've already said they're going to focus on expanding to a more diverse group of voters. Uh, but you look, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if we, if the best comparison, you know, <laughs> to the Civil War South, but um, it is certainly the case that the Republican Party had been very explicit about race at one point in time, uh, had come up with a way to talk about race that was coded under things like busing and, you know, uh, welfare and things along those lines. Uh, and that during the Trump era, a lot of that stuff got decoded. It was just very explicitly racial, uh, in part by talking about race through the lens of Americans' broad demographic trends. Um, and so, you know, that was what Donald Trump was able to leverage. Yeah, I think... Um you have a sentence there somewhere that says it's useful here to point out the extent to which white Republican is broadly redundant. Yeah, no, absolutely right. 
most Democrats are white, too, but it's almost like the generational divide that the boomers are much, much, much more heavily white. Democrats are much more evenly split. Um, I'm going to just leave politics for a minute, uh, sort of an aside, but it's one that is really important to your analysis. And again, fascinating. And it's really the concept of race. You, I mean, you spend a lot of time on the data, right? And I think you conclude that the racial categories, I mean, I know they're ridiculous from a genetic point of view, but f- even from political and, and how do you fill out the census point of view, they're um, <laughs> complicated. They're not what they seem, right? Talk about that. I mean, you, you talked about the journey some people have. You had a chapter, I think, called like how to legally be white. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So there is the reason this is I do spend the book talking about race and racial identity. The reason it's important is because so much of what we're seeing now in terms of political tension is rooted in this concept that people have that American democracy is changing. And it's true. Obviously, America's uh, demographic makeup looks different than it used to. But there is an assumption. So we, we see these headlines at times. That, you know, whites are no longer a majority in America. or They're not going to be soon. Or the Hispanics are, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, you know, the book also talks about how the way you talk about that can trigger uh, white Republicans in particular. But it's also really rooted, particularly the Census Bureau data, is really rooted in this conception of race as being a very static thing, that people who are Hispanic now and their families are Hispanic now will continue to be Hispanic in the future, which simply isn't how a racial identity works. And so, you know, I look at research and I look at history to talk about how malleable our perceptions of what race is and what what it means to be white, who gets to be included under the umbrella of white, uh, how that changes over time. And there are a lot of people who you say these things to them, they're like, what the hell are you talking about? I look at someone and I see they're white, right? Like we have this very, it's almost like the generations themselves in that you look at someone who's a baby boomer, you're like, well, obviously they're a baby boomer, but there are a lot of people who fall into an area where it's not as clear. Am I Gen X or am I millennial? When was I born? What is it? generational definition, you know, in race, obviously a much more important issue. A lot of people fall in the same category. There are a lot of people who, depending on what the moment happens to be in which they're asked, will change their racial identity, right? We'll say, well, I'm Hispanic, or we'll say I'm white, or I'll say I'm whatever, not because they're making it up, not because it's not real, but because A, they don't usually think about it, right? It's only when we're asked our race that we tend to think about our race, particularly uh, for people who are predominantly white. Uh, but B, because these things are complicated and because it is so dependent upon ancestry and because people's ancestries are so mixed and modeled, that can affect the way in which we perceive our position in the, in the country in the moment, which can then affect how we perceive our own racial identity. And since all that stuff is so vague, and since the Citizens Bureau is doing a good job of expanding its ability to capture how people identify their own race, it means that these hard and fast ideas of whites will be a minority is really archaic in the, in as much as it is damaging. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about, you know, you go back and talk about, oh, I don't know, Irish and Italian tensions um, in a different generation. And then you said something I, somewhere like um, somebody who identified as as Hispanic, white Hispanic, but Hispanic, or, you know, you know, a 
two generations later into into America, they they lose often the Hispanic. And so it's not that people forget where they're from, but the immigration part of it is less important after you've been here for a while. So as what's happened with everybody else. And then, and then you default to sort of broader, more accepted categories, even if the categories are fake, I'm white, I'm black, I'm whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I mean, I hesitate to use the word fake just because that, that. Not I agree. It's the wrong word. It's the wrong word. Right. No, no, Absolutely. Right. Right. You're right. Um, you know, but, but yes, the, the idea that there is a consistency to this thing and a, I mean, look, I think all of us now realize that the standard which used to be used in some places to determine if someone was black, which is if they had a single drop of black blood in their family tree within a certain number of generations, that that is gross and not useful and doesn't really actually capture what someone's identity is, right? There are, there are all the yep. ways in yep. which the ways we can look back at how we used to look at race. And well, that was weird and stupid, but now we're now we're just like we've got it perfect. No, we don't. Right? And I think that right. having a sophisticated understanding of how people actually identify their own race is important and important in the context of this discussion. Okay, on that uh, cliffhanger, we need to take a break for a moment. Sure. But when we come back, we're going to continue this really important conversation with Philip Bump. You're listening to the Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT eight twenty. Okay, if you're just joining us, I'm talking to the Washington Post's Philip Bump about his fabulous new book, The Aftermath, which is really, I think, the first of what's going to be a lot of books on this massively important generational shift as baby boomers uh, uh, slowly head into the sunset. Um, Phil, before the break, we were talking about religion. I'm sorry, we were talking about race. But this is also about religion. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, certainly, from the standpoint that, uh, it's from two standpoints. The first is that younger Americans are less likely to participate in organized religion, uh, and that has repercussions in a number of ways, including that uh, there is a loss of uh, sense of community that that can bring and community identity, which I think uh, influences things like the extent to which black Americans in the future consistently vote as heavily democratic, uh, something that's reinforced according to people with whom I spoke uh, through uh, church membership participation. Uh, but then, of course, we have this group of particularly evangelical Christians uh, that is very, very fervently uh, conservative uh, in a way that overlaps neatly with Donald Trump's politics, uh, in large part because many of them just happen to be conservative in politics. But so I guess what element of religion, please. Yep, I'm sorry. I guess what, what I neglected to say, um, which was clear in your book, is that the the, um, the base of the GOP today, if you ha- if is overwhelmingly white baby boomers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's I, 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 I honestly I don't remember <laughs> the book is long. I don't remember if it's actually a majority at this point in time. But yeah, there is. Uh, and there, there, there are a few reasons for that, right? The first is if you consider that the Republican Party is much more heavily white uh, than the Democratic Party, it's much heavily older uh, because younger people tend to be more democratic. Um, and you consider the baby boom is the largest generation. Those, yeah, those like the three things together, and you get, yes, the Republican Party is very heavily white baby boomers. Again, huge contingent of progressive baby boomers 
the, the resistance movement was uh, really, really grounded in uh, older white women, particularly college-educated women, uh, that were right. the core of the, the resistance movement. Uh, but the baby boomer is giant. So if you have a giant generation that has a lot of conservatives in it, that's, that's where you land. And one of the biggest factors that you found was um, not so much race and religion, very important, but geography. Yeah, right. And this, I mean, I, I wouldn't, this isn't me finding it. This is, a, this is fairly well established on that. Yep. You know, we have this, uh, what's been called the big sort, um, some really great work uh, stretching back a long time about how people tend to aggregate around particular geographic areas. And not only in the country, I mean, we know that New York City, for example, is much more liberal than Texas, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. also even within New York City, even within cities, there's been some good research that's been done uh, to look at how there is segmentation politically with cities themselves looking for the registration data. Um, and this has a lot of effects, one of which is that we are uh, a lot of us simply don't know anyone who holds the opposite political position than we do, or, you know, or that we aren't friends with people who voted for the other political candidate in the last election, in part because we may not work with people who differ from us in that way. We may not live near people who uh, uh, voted that way. And that then can help contribute to things like, oh, the sense of how can Joe Biden's election be legitimate? I don't know anyone who voted for him. Right? So, so it's sort of this cascade, uh, all of which flows from this, this predilection we have toward living near people who sort of share our collective views. Right. And bad selection bias. Um, during the during the break, I got a text from my mid 20s son who said, come on, dad, you got to talk about this. It's so much harder for anybody my age to go out and, have you know, have a job, allow me to buy a house. I mean, that the, the, the challenges that these uh, that the follow on generations to the baby boomers face with like, who owns the wealth and how do they live an independent life are pretty big. Yeah, no, 100%. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, this is a subject of an entire chapter of the book, uh, you know, what, what the economic transition is going to look like. I mentioned earlier that, again, this, this, this is a act, although it's not one that's partisan, you do have a lot of people who invested heavily in their homes as a store of value, particularly that they're looking to extract from after they retire, uh, are opposed to things like new housing projects. They'll add to housing because that will decrease their property values or they perceive that it will. And, you know, the book yep. explores both how those mechanisms, how that's preserved and the, the who shows up to talk about new housing projects when they're being considered by cities. It talks about the effects of this, how the labor market was dampened nationally simply by virtue of the lack of housing in a few key places like the Bay Area in California. You know, this is absolutely, I, I don't think that there was, you know, this giant cabal of boomers who sat around and said, ha, 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 let's screw these kids out of housing. But just because they're so big, so many of them own homes, and they've owned homes for so long, for so long, and, you know, may have some uncertainty about retirement, then you have this knock-on fact, which is that new homes are harder to construct, there's fewer houses to buy, that homes are more expensive, and then those are the sorts of barriers that you see for housing for younger people. And you see this not just with housing, but with a lot of other things as well. So that's where we are. And then you, you, you begin to look at where we're going. Um, and again, can I read you from your own book as set up to this? Um, you, you said, as the baby boom ages, we can expect to see a few patterns emerge. 
an increase in wealth transfers downward that primarily benefit the already wealthy. More older Americans struggling with debt, particularly if the stock market that holds so much retirement wealth changed direction. We'll see funds being drawn out of Social Security at a rapid, though not necessarily dire clip, a bumpy housing market as seniors give up homes that don't always match with what younger Americans demand, an increase in the ratio of elderly to working age Americans that both strains employers looking to fill positions and later strains government budgets as a number of elderly people seeking care increases. Okay, I read that and I... I needed to go pour myself a cup of tea and take a break because that is that is deeply concerning at about 11 levels. Yeah, I mean, it is. But it, 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 this is also one of those things. And one of the points of the book is that while I set out to say, OK, here's a definitive look at where we're going to be, it, I was very quickly disabused of my own ability to do that because – so much is fungible depending on the present, right? And it depends on the decisions we make now. And so I think that recognizing that these perils loom, as experts do, which they convey to me, uh, potentially start addressing them, right? So when we talk about, for example, this, this yawning gap between the number of older people and the number of younger people who are working and paying into Social Security and paying taxes, like that's addressable, right? That's addressable through expanding immigration. It's addressable through other, other mechanisms uh, aimed at increasing the number of working age people. Like you can do things mm-hmm. about that now. You can do things about housing supply. You can do things about ensuring that we have the proper system set up uh, to care for the elderly. You know, this is the beginning, which is when the boom emerged, all of a sudden we had to scramble to start building schools for all these brand new kindergartners that we weren't anticipating. Well, people have been anticipating this sudden need to accommodate a massive and growing elderly population for the past 70 years. We, you know, the woman who I spoke with who worked for the senior housing uh, industry was like, yeah, man, this is our moment, right? <laughs> like, you know, right. it's like you, it's like you made this invest. You have you have a, a CD with the bank, and you know it cashes out in ten years, and you're going to get this massive bonanza. That's what these people are saying. They know this is coming, right? And so we just need to be smart about it. But the challenge is one of the challenges we have in the moment is at the same time that we know we need to accommodate this older group of Americans, we have this younger group of Americans that is very big and very vocal. Uh, that is saying, hey, we also need attention and resources, and then that increases the strain both economically and politically. But, you know, yeah, and if you, on both ends. Right. And if, if you go to um, here in Chicago, the Harris School of Public Policy, or there, but there's schools like it around the country, they have students hard at work on these problems. And mostly there actually are things we can do to solve them. But our politics gets in the way and our politics gets in the way precisely because of the um, wedges that the that the generational divide that you've talked about has uncovered. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's right. And, you know, I mean, there are obviously a lot of problems in American politics right now that are not contained to age. But if you also think about the fact one party, one political party that is much more heavily dependent upon the votes of older Americans and representing the views of older Americans who also happen to be more heavily white Americans, you know, mm-hmm. changes your political dynamic pretty, pretty dramatically. Yeah. Well, um, it, we, we talked about this path, but then your book um, 
takes a bit of a, 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 it's not a detour. It also just flat out says, look, there's some really important things that we don't know. And one of the great examples was, um, you know, we in accounting for where we were going to be, um, we're getting there a lot faster because COVID killed so many older people. Um, right. I mean, they're just things out of our control. We don't know what climate change is going to do to living patterns. And you, you, you talk about these. Say a little bit more about these. Yeah. I mean, part of that's just this recognition that if we're what the book tries to do is sort of anticipate where we're going to be in about 30 years time. And to do that, you have to stop and say, okay, look, we have to admit there's a lot of stuff that's going to come up, but we don't know what's going to be. We have, you know, we do have our known unknowns to use the famous Rumsfeldian phrase, which is climate change, for example. Um, but, you know, COVID is such a great example. And I use it all the time, particularly when we're talking about politics and people ask me my political predictions is that, you know, December, 2019, you ask me what 2020 looks like. I'm 100% wrong. Yeah. <laughs> not a 30 year gap. Right. So I think the humility is in order. I mean, the book does spend some time uh, talking about how we simply don't know how long boomers are going to live. Right? We have seen a steady increase in life expectancy that got decapped uh, pretty dramatically by COVID and by uh, the opioid epidemic. Um, mm-hmm. That, that, that changes understanding how long people are going to be around, how long boomers are going to be around. Um, you know, obviously we all hope that everyone's going to be around as long as they possibly can. But, you know, when you're thinking about what the future of the pay room is, you have to think about things like this. So, yeah, so we have these, these, these questions. And of course, the big question also is like, well, you know, do we feel safe making predictions about American democracy based on the state of American democracy? And that chapter to which you refer is bookended by this conversation about what Alabama looked like in 1950. And, you know, the conversation about how in 1950, the city of Birmingham was having uh, a celebration for its centennial and, you know, put all these letters in a time capsule looking forward a hundred years. So I spent a little bit of time just reading those letters and looking at what did they expect to happen? Uh, and it's very sobering, both because, you know, they had no idea what the hell was going to happen, <laughs> totally understandably, but also because they right. were, weren't even they weren't even uh, foresighted enough to recognize their city's own racial problems would become a massive issue. Uh, and, you know, obviously they did. And it was a marker. It's a reminder that even just back then, which wasn't that long ago, you know, we didn't really have real pluralistic democracy in the United States. And, you know, that we have it now is new and fragile in a way that I think a lot of us like to forget. Yeah, we talk about that here a little bit. Um, that, and, and you do in your book a lot that, that the normal, the normal, I put it in quotes, but the throughout most of our history, we have not been a, a fully participating democracy. I mean, the baby boomers were alive and well because it wasn't until 1968, for gosh sakes, that black Americans could fully legally participate in a presidential election. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. And, you know, that, that, that we pride ourselves on having uh, moved away from that. But I think it's very clear that the, the idea that, and, you know, I, I speak with Thomas Zimmer, who's a guy who studies democracy in the book, and, you know, he points to the United States as a test ground. Like, now the United States is this fully pluralistic democracy. It is a, uh, a country that is not uh, centrally one cultural or ethnic heritage in the way that, you know, European countries are, for example, can we make it work? Uh, And this is a moment of testing that. Yeah. And those of you who are listening, you remember Tom Zimmer. He's been on a few times and we've 
we've had this conversation, very interesting, right, about the direction we choose to go. Um, John, like, you, you also, you met and talked to the very first baby boomer. Yes, sir. Well, like, yeah. she's, is she, is she tired of talking to reporters? I mean, how does, how, like, what does that life look like? And, and what was she like? No, she's great. Yeah, she's, uh, you know, look, the the very first page in the book talks about her as the first baby boomer, as identified by this great guy, Lane Jones, who wrote a really good book about the baby boom back at the beginning of the boom, or, the, you know, the beginning of its cultural influence in the 1980s. Um, but he sort of identified her. She was born, you know, stroke of midnight on January 1st, 1946, first year of baby boom. But technically, the baby boom didn't actually start until the middle of 1946, according to Monifer. So she sort of is the first baby boomer by dint of, of Lane Jones having attacked her as such. Uh, but she's, right. you know, she's gotten celebrated that to some extent. The government, for example, when it was started to do outreach to baby boomers uh, when they started to turn 65 and could re-access Social Security. They, you know, had a big to-do and they had her come out and she made some media appearances. She, she's really a wonderful woman. She lives in New Jersey. She has a house in Florida. She's very cognizant, you know, as I think she sort of necessarily would have to be, of what baby boomer means as a cultural force in the United States because she's been this, this she's, she's uh, been emblematic of it since, it first came to our attention in, you know, it was uh, mid-1980s when Jones wrote this book and people started focus on her. So she's, you know, she's just, she's, she's a great woman. She's very interested to speak with, very helpful and sort of uh, serving as this anchor point for what the boom will look like and went through. Uh, but, you know, very aware that the legacy of the baby boom is, is, is next. Yeah, I mean, you start and you end with her when I think she says, like, Let's yeah. pray. It's like future. I don't know. Yeah, pray. Devoutly Catholic. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. She's, she she represents the boomers well. Honestly, she she can have the yeah. What got you to do this book? Um. So as you know, I do a lot of data stuff, and one of the things that kept coming up as I was doing this, and I've been doing this for a long time now. Um, was this idea of generations. And people like to talk about generations and think about generations. And I realized, you know, maybe a decade ago now that generations are mostly just big constructs that marketers or, or pollsters or other people come up with because it's sort of fun to talk about or it's useful to think of people as, as unified cohorts. Or, or, um, and so I was thinking about what it meant, you know, what it meant that we had this baby boom, these other generations. And then I started digging into it and found both, you know, got a better appreciation for the scale of the boom and saw how the differences between older and younger Americans as captured between the boomers and millennials really encapsulated a lot of the struggles that America is going through right now. Uh, and that was it. It was all well, it's a heck of a book. And now um, let's get into the weeds on publishing. You, you, The book rolls out in two days, which means what? Yeah, on Tuesday, it's funny because it's uh, if you pre-order through Barnes & Noble, apparently you can go pick it up at Barnes & Noble, which <laughs> people started texting me and like, hey, I just got your book at Barnes & Noble. Um, and yeah, it just means that if you pre-ordered it, um, that you'll get it on Tuesday. If you can go to a bookstore on Tuesday, hopefully, and find a copy of it. Uh, and yeah, it's, I mean, look, I, I work for a newspaper, and so the pace of publishing a book is 100% inverted from the pace of publishing a newspaper, much less for the, for the web. Uh, you know, I started working on this in early 2021, and here we are finally getting them out the door. Yeah. Do you go on a, do you, do you take a leave from the post to go on a book tour? 
No, it's sort of fascinating. They discovered even prior to COVID that there wasn't, they didn't see huge benefits from doing those sorts of book tours. And they tend to be very expensive. I have an event yep. coming up tomorrow in BC. Um, and, you know, we'll probably do some virtual or streaming stuff. I, I don't know. We're, we're sort of figuring out what the plan is. But I'm not, not like, unfortunately, I can't say, hey, I'm going to roll up and I'll be in Chicago on March 9th or whatever it happens. Right. Right. In the, in the middle of a mayoral election. I don't think that's would be the best time for, for this. But, but listen, everybody who's listening, this is a fascinating book. And, and Phil, you are a clear writer. You've always been a clear writer, but you make data accessible to everybody. And, you know, every chart in the book has an explainer. For those of you who aren't, you know, just book chart savvy, that says how to read this chart, which if you're familiar with Phil's column, you know, it, it, it tracks. Yeah. You know what? That's actually because my editor at Viking, she's not a data person. She's like, look, you know, what I would almost want is just a paragraph under each graph telling me how to read it to my house simple. Like, you know what? That's a great idea. And that was actually the genesis for the newsletter too. Like, yeah, I think uh-huh. I can sort of use this idea of how do I read this chart? Just make it familiar and make it easy and make it interesting. Uh, so yeah, so hopefully the book is, you know, you flip through it, you see a lot of graphs, but hopefully it's not all putting each of them as explained. Well, but but because of those explainers, you can use increasingly complex ways to show data and make it possible. Like, for example, you have some spider graphs um, in the middle that that explain sort of the current and future racial makeup, demographic, not just racial, demographic makeup of places, you know, and I was stunned by that. You mean you, you talked about like Florida. Right. You know, a bunch of states that are voting Democratic look this way. By the way, so does Florida, even more so. Yeah, yeah and there's actually, if people want to see that, that that section of the book was excerpted by the Washington Post. If you go to the Washington Post and search for like, Future of Politics, Florida, Washington Post, do a search for that. You can read that article and see the graph you're referring to. Yeah, I was stunned. I mean, just as an aside, I was stunned by how much what the Census Bureau expects American uh, the, the age and racial demographics of the United States look like in 2060, how much it actually overlaps with what Florida looks like now. Important caveats to that that are explained in the book and in that piece online. Uh, but yeah, right. it really, really does map pretty remarkable. Really remarkable. But, but yeah. so besides the, besides the, the, what the data show, the, I mean, most Americans are not data literate. Um, I bet most have never seen a spider graph, but you make it possible for people to become more data literate, which is um, in itself something, I mean, data literacy, media literacy, these are things that our public need to have for the politics that we're in. Yeah, I mean, honestly, for the moment, right, there's so much data out there, yep. so much presentation of data that I really think it's useful for people at least to feel comfortable with looking at something and be able to parse it. Um, yeah, in this book hopefully makes it easy to do that in the context of the book, but then obviously my newsletter more broadly. That's, that's the point. Hopefully we get there. All right. Well, you have been very generous with your time when you are not taking a book tour. You're still publishing weekly column and you're launching a book. That's it. You know, you got to get a foot in that work. We do our best. You got to, yep. You got to do what you got to do. Um, but I really appreciate the time you gave me today. And, um, and I really appreciate this book. I'm really glad you wrote it. It's very kind of you to be so generous with it as well. So I appreciate it. Now, next time we talk, we're back to politics, you know, on a regular basis. But this this was great. Thank you, Phil. I really appreciate it.
You bet. All right, every, everybody. That was the remarkable Philip Bump, who is, of course, national editor at the Washington Post, talking about um, his new and fascinating um, book, The Aftermath. We're going to take a break um, coming up to the news. I may have talked to him through a break, so this may be a little longer because I owe the advertisers some time. And when we come back, uh, we're going to be joined by John Nichols. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Welcome back, everybody. And I am now joined by John Nichols. He is National Affairs Correspondent with The Nation and Associate Editor of Cap Times in Wisconsin. You all know him. We've talked to him quite a bit. Um, Lucky us, actually. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, Edwin. Hey, I don't do breaking news, really, but um, mm-hmm. I, I, since I've been on the air, Ron claimed. Should you, you want to tell everybody what just happened and talk about that? Well, word is that Ron Klain, uh, who is the White House chief of staff and, and really as such the senior uh, figure in the, uh, in the staff of the White House, the guy who oversees the people who work with the president on all the major issues, uh, plans to step down uh, sometime after uh, the state or around the State of the Union address. Uh, and that is as big a development as you can have, frankly, in a White House, aside from a decision by the president or vice president to stand down. So it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a very big deal. You know, he, he, uh, he uh, I mean, everybody in the Democratic side likes to criticize every Democrat, right, because that's what we do for fun. But Ron Klain had a big hand in all of the legislative success that the president and the 117th Congress achieved. And I wonder if he just thought um, they need a different kind of warrior for a different kind of house. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, Look, the uh, first two years of the Biden administration were not easy, right? You had a Democratic majority in the House that was extremely small and a Democratic majority in the Senate that was even smaller. And Klain, who came out of a Senate background, along with much other experience mm-hmm. uh, with a particularly skilled person to deal with that circumstance. There's no question. Um, however, I will tell you, uh, you know, he's, he's a broadly experienced policy uh, figure and a broadly experienced legislative uh, strategist. And so I, I think losing him is a big deal, no matter, uh, you know, whether you've got the, yep. the previous yep. circumstance or the current one, I don't think this should be downplayed. I, I think that for whatever reason he is leaving, and they will, of course, put the best spin on it, um, he is going to be very, very hard to replace. And I think it's also important to understand that Klain was uh, someone who had a lot of respect with progressives. Um, he uh, certainly had been a, you know, a major player around Washington for a long time, a uh, very experienced player uh, who knew centrists and even some more conservative Democrats. But at the end of the day, um, I think he was seen as somebody who brought a lot of progressive ideas into the White House and gave them air, gave them space. And so as the choice of a successor uh, comes into play, as that's now going to be instantly discussed, uh, the question is going to be, will that next person be 
as, uh, you know, as frankly open as Klain has been uh, to progressive ideas and to, you know, to a legislative strategy that, of course, is going to be different with Republican control of the House, but still obviously is going to have a lot of the same goals. Yeah, I think it'll be it'll be very tough. It's certainly very big news that just happened and a story we're going to have to watch. But um, I want everybody to hear your take because I think it's it, it, it. This is an exceptional change right now. Yeah. And, and, and if I can add one more thing, it is I, I can't believe that it is a change that uh, that most of Biden world is happy to see happen. Um, I, I think, by and large, uh, Biden has placed a very, very big emphasis on continuity. He hasn't had a lot of staff turnover. Uh, I think Klain was a part of that. He's somebody who helped to make sure that the staff did work well together, that things remain functional. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there will be concerns. Uh, it doesn't mean that they can't find someone very capable to replace him. And I expect if anybody is up to that, it's Joe Biden, who knows an awfully lot of key figures in Washington and on Capitol Hill. But uh, again, I would tell you, I think it's a it is a big deal. And it's one that's going to, you know, it's going to cause Biden supporters and Biden allies in the White House and beyond the White House uh, to you know, probably maybe have a, a slightly more sleepless night tonight. Yeah, me, me I'm one of them. I mean, I look, every <laughs> every White House, every not just White House, Every politician at every level has some unforced errors. That's life, right? And and Biden's had them. God knows he's had them, but he's had fewer than anybody expected, you know. And and they and they've handled them by and large pretty well. Um, and they've had a lot of successes. And Ron Klain gets a lot of credit for that. That's right. Yep. All right. Uh, let me change the subject uh, to something that is not cheerier. Um, I, I think, you know, you've written a lot about COVID. Um, and I just, I just think the country is in such denial about what happened to us. And I, 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 the reason this came to me is here in Chicago, you know, we've had a surge of violence. And a lot of that violence is 16 year olds with guns who, were lost in COVID. The, the salubrious impact of being in school, you know, vanished and they just fell out. They, this is what happened to them. It's absolutely horrifying. And, and, and these are, you know, and other kids are just two years behind. I mean, what, what happened and, to and those also, kids? It, terrible, right? Let's emphasize it's not just Chicago. This is no, that's right. Nationwide, even worldwide. Yeah. Yep. And, and in the U.S., you know, we have this this labor shortage that people are talking about. And, you know, we attribute it to lots of things. But like, duh, we lost a million people. I mean, that, but, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that that impacts the workforce. Right. And and the ones we didn't lose directly had to stay home to care for an elderly person or kids or something. So I, I wonder, you know, how you think we're going to come to grips with what we've just been through. Because I just, you know, we're so happy to sort of be on the other side that I don't think we've really, like with the AIDS crisis, we didn't look for a while. And then somebody wrote Angels in America, right? I mean, it takes a while to understand what we've been through. 
Well, one of the things that's important to understand is the, the nature of the United States, which is that as a country, it likes to move forward. Um, and, and I think this is a, a fair thing to say that goes beyond partisanship. It goes beyond ideology. There is a desire in America, uh, perhaps because of its long history as an immigrant nation, uh, so many other factors, that people say, you know, this is, you know, you, you, you started yesterday's it. news. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and it's it's easier in many ways to do that. But it's there are dangers. And I think one of the big dangers here is that COVID was a it was devastating. It costs uh, an immense amount in human toll as well as economic toll. Mm-hmm. And it caused us to restructure how we did all sorts of things. Um, pretty much, if you look at how we approach a, a whole host of issues today, as opposed to just a couple of years ago, you'll see impacts everywhere. And um, I don't think that as a society, we have paused to assess whether the changes that we made, whether the new approaches that we adopted um, were A, the appropriate approaches. In some cases, they may not have been. So we may have made mistakes along the way. But B, whether they're sufficient to what we now know are the challenges we face. And it is, to me, uh, extremely unsettling that we're going forward now uh, with the drug companies, the pharmaceutical companies saying, yeah, we're going to keep making vaccines, um, but now we're going to charge a whole lot more from for them. In fact, uh, about ten days. Moderna is on my list to ask you about, John. <laughs> well, there you have it. You know, yeah. Moderna makes its uh, COVID shots for about two eighty five, two dollars and eighty five cents a dose. Um, they now want to raise the cost for those shots to a hundred and thirty dollars a dose. That's a $127 increase. And because so many of those doses are paid for by Medicare, Medicaid, and other public programs, we're talking about billions of dollars of expense for a vaccine that Moderna developed in cooperation with NIH scientists. And that's just one example of a place where we had a pause and say, you know, yeah, we really want these vaccines. We want to treat people. We want to get people the medication they need. You know, we want to be very, very open to how best to respond to this and how to do so quickly and efficiently. But um, we do also want to make sure that, frankly, we are not the victims of price gouging and profiteering. Yeah, competition helps. And, and I mean, initially there were three, right? Johnson and Johnson right. kind of vanished. Right. Um, right. But there's still two. And, so, and Moderna. Yeah. so maybe uh, that competition, I don't know how Moderna survives. I mean, they want to go out of the business because because. Yeah. No, right? I mean, I can tell you, I've, I've written about Pfizer as well. And they they're not about profiteering either. And yeah. so the bottom yeah. line here is that I think we're at a moment where the drug companies uh who are always looking to up their profits are kind of looking at exactly what you've brought up, Edwin, this transition point where we're moving from 
you know, one attitude toward COVID, toward a, frankly, a more relaxed attitude in many ways, but one that still accepts that we're going to need vaccines and we're going to need, you know, some sort of treatment for this ongoing challenge. When you're in that space, right, um, it's very, very important that you make smart, critical decisions. And my fear is that some of the overlay of urgency from the past in combination with a, this more relaxed approach leaves a void where um, the people who are always you know, up early and ready to move, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, are looking to make big profits and, make, and have us pay for it. Yeah. And, and, you know, timing that with the departure of a White House chief of staff who oversaw getting shots in arms, um, all of that is is uh, anxiety provoking for me. Well, I think, look, like I said, um, Joe Biden knows his way around Washington and Capitol Hill. Thirty six years as a senator, eight years yep. as vice president, two years now as president. He knows pretty much everybody in Washington and beyond Washington. So it's certainly likely that he will find an able replacement for Ron Klain. But we should not lose sight of the fact that any transition in the White House staff at a point like this, when you're really pivoting into a new Congress and really starting to look toward 2024 in the presidential race, that is something that, you know, it's going to unsettle folks. Yeah, on its own. But just related to COVID, this is the chief yeah. of staff who who really understood the what the vaccines were, how to get them into arms, the issues of the pricing. And so it, it, the timing on that is, is, you know, if you were a drug company and you were only interested in profits, this would be good news. Uh, can well, we turn yeah. to, yeah, um, not for the rest of us, for sure. Um, can we turn to your favorite state for a minute? Of course. Um, in, in, in Wisconsin, well, actually, I want to ask you about one of your fine citizens and have you tell us about him. And this would be sure. Robert Spindell Jr. I, I oh think people should, I think people <laughs> should know about him, you know, so I'd like to invite yeah. you to tell us a little about him. Well, he's a Republican uh, operative uh, who is the chair of the Republican Party in the congressional district that takes in Milwaukee. And he is also a member of the state elections board, which is or commission, which is a very powerful uh, oversight agency, uh, basically oversees elections. And the elections commission is, you know, it's put together by appointees of both parties. It's a relatively evenly, it is an evenly divided uh, commission. And, and, you know, they got to work together and do things. And they occasionally actually do succeed in, in working together reasonably well. But um, Spindell has created a lot of controversy because at, around the time of the New Year, uh, he put out several statements in which he bragged about how activities of the Republican Party in the Milwaukee area um, depressed or kept down the vote among black and Latinx voters. Um, and Milwaukee did have a depressed turnout by minority voters in uh, 2022. And the notion that somebody who is supposed to be overseeing elections and presumably encouraging high turnout is bragging about depressed turnout and about taking actions that that might have caused people not to choose to vote um, or making it harder for people to vote 
that's not a, a very appealing message. Uh, and so you've seen a number of state legislators, activist groups, and others call for Spindell to be removed from this election oversight board. Uh, and to, frankly, if he won't resign and leave, uh, that the head of the Republican majority in the state Senate who appointed him should withdraw that appointment. Okay. Uh, are we talking about Robin Voss or somebody else? No, no, this is somebody else. This is uh, oh, Devin LeMayhew. In oh, the- sorry, the Senate side. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a complex thing, Edward, but the basic way it yeah. works is that each um, leader of a legislative caucus gets to appoint one member of, of the commission. Yeah. Well, and case, so. And the Senate is the oversight person. Do you expect uh, the pressure to result in him leaving? No, I don't. Uh, no. <laughs> we have such a deeply divided state as regards electoral politics and such, you know, intense tensions uh, that uh, people just go to their camp. They go to their sides. Uh, I do think that some of the statements made by Spindell have embarrassed the Republicans. And it is within the realm of possibility that at a reasonable point, uh, LeMahieu, Voss and others might suggest to Spindell that it's time to move on to, to do well, something else. You mean because he uh, said the quiet part out loud. Respond to the calls as, as immediately as they should. But this gets at a divide, a deep divide across the country, because what he is bragging about doing, depressing the votes of, of, of black voters in cities, is something uh-huh. that is, uh, you know, a feature, not a flaw, if you're a, a Republican these days. I mean, yeah. I... I, before you came on, I was talking to loud quite that often. Yeah. Well, more and more they do. I mean, after Donald Trump, they kind of right. do. I mean, yeah, you're I, right. you know, earlier I was talking with um, the Washington Post, Philip Bump, about his new book, The Aftermath, mm-hmm. which is fabulous. I mean, I, it's a and it's a deep dive into the transition from the baby boom era to what comes next. And in the book, he points to Wisconsin as a place where mostly rural, overwhelmingly white, almost exclusively Christian Americans seem willing to walk away from liberal democracy in order to hold power. Mm-hmm. Well, look, in Wisconsin, it's an important thing to understand that that what we had for a very, very long time was a progressive state. Uh, and you had multiracial, multiethnic coalitions, urban and rural, uh, that came together to vote for Democrats for president, send pretty liberal Democrats to the Senate, and then, uh, you know, generally have, not always, but if not a liberal Democratic governor, usually a moderate Republican. So mm-hmm. the traditions in the state were quite similar to what you see in Minnesota and in Michigan. Um, and we have seen a lot of that blown apart. Some of that has to do with the change in our media system. Um, we just don't have the same kind of media uh, that we had 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. a lot of our communications has shifted. Also, Wisconsin has been, you know, has turned into a real kind of uh, test case for a lot of the billionaires who have moved tremendous amounts of money into politics, trying to influence uh, what happens in the states because that's good for them economically, it advances their ideological and political agendas. So Wisconsin's really become, you know, the ultimate battleground, the ultimate test case. And 
unfortunately, um, that that fight has not been a purely ideological fight. It has also been a practical and structural fight where you have seen the Republicans clearly try to make it harder for Democratic voters to cast ballots. It is, you know, this is not a particularly debatable point. It is something that has gone on now for the better part more than a decade. We have the most radically gerrymandered legislature. Uh, We have had all sorts of assaults on early voting and things of that nature. The Supreme Court, which is very aligned with the Republicans, recently banned drop boxes to drop off ballots, if you can imagine it. So you've got all this stuff in play. And then to have an election commissioner uh, come forward and say, yeah, you know, we did a whole bunch of things that made it harder to vote. Um, That kind of highlights uh, just the, the ugliness, frankly, of what has happened in a state that I would emphasize. And this is important to understand that, you know, as a native Wisconsinite who born and raised here, multi generations in this state, I can tell you Republicans and Democrats used to have no problem getting together on the basic question of making it easy to vote. This is, I mean, you had bipartisan support for efforts to have very high turnout, to have very open, very fair elections. And um, a lot of that has fallen apart, I think, in no small part, because of pressure from the outside uh, to make Wisconsin, which has been a battleground state, into a, a securely Republican state. What's notable about it and important to understand is there's been an incredible resistance to that on the part of uh, the voters of Wisconsin. And remember, they have you know rejected, ultimately, it took a few years, but they've rejected Scott Walker. They've rejected a lot of the conservatives. And now this April, there is uh, a reasonable chance that the Supreme Court could end up uh, with a liberal majority. So um, it remains this incredible battleground, uh, and the battle never seems to end. Yeah, I I am in awe of what Democrats have done to fight back from the sort of Scott Walker damage. I'm in awe of the work there. Um, But, I mean, Robin Voss, the Speaker of the House, this this week I thought he was playing to, like, everybody's great replacement theory worries again. Oh, yeah. No. The funny thing – go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I just say that that Voss is in a very strange position right now politically because he's got problems in his own party. Um, Voss is sort of a, uh, you know, traditional conservative Republican who is very pro-corporate. And he's been sympathetic to a lot of these assaults on voting rights. But um, now he's being attacked by Trump and Trump-aligned folks for not being extreme enough. And so... We've seen since the 2022 election really wildly mixed signals from Robin Boss. At times talking about wanting to work together with Tony Evers, the Democratic governor, and others to try and achieve a few things. And then at other times going to extreme positions uh, that sort of blow stuff up. And just this last week, Voss and Devin LeMahieu, the Senate majority leader, proposed a flat tax for Wisconsin. Uh, And it's important to understand Wisconsin is the birthplace of progressive taxation. Mm-hmm. Uh, proposing a flat tax is something, you know, not that many years ago, even Republicans would have laughed the idea off. But now, you know, the politics has become so nationalized that, you know, some of the worst ideas and the worst approaches 
get pulled in from elsewhere and, and, and are defining a lot of the Republican politics in the state. Well, I, I can't get my head deeply into Republican politics. It's hard for me because I don't have any sources there. It's not that I can't imagine it. It's just not the, that's not the world I live in. So I don't have any sources, you know, and so I can't really understand from talking to them. But I look at Robin Voss, this this um, hard, you know, like Illinois Democrat Mike Madigan was. But, you know, this this sort of super in control House leader. Republican, mm-hmm. corporate type, his base has gone insane, which he has helped inflame. So he, he throws him a bone of a guy named Robin Gableman who goes off or, uh, and says the elect- Robin Gableman. But- what I'm sorry. Yes. Right. He's yeah. Robin. Gableman. Yeah. yeah. Gableman does this, does this right. And then ends up having to get in a fight with him because he's too crazy. Right. I mean, That's I, right. I, I kind of sort of want to see if he can, he, I mean, there's no savvier, state Republican leader than Mr. Voss. The question of whether the Republican Party can survive in America is on display in Wisconsin because he either finds a way to make it a conservative party again, a right of center, but sane party, or he loses it entirely, in which case the Republican Party is, um, you know, an anti-democratic menace that will go away. Well, and that's, that is, uh, I think you summed it up actually very well. You say you don't have sources and that, um, but in fact, you seem to be seeing it very clearly. And, you know, Robin Boss, uh, who really is sort of a man of government, who's been in the legislature for a very long time and was a county board member before that, you know, he jumped on the back of this bucking Bronco and now he's trying to stay on. And um, it's hard for him. I, I suspect that this may be Robin Boss's last term as speaker. And um, that is uh, certainly there's a lot of people that are going to be glad to say goodbye to him because he's been a very tough player. Um, but by the same token, there are real concerns about the, the chaos within the Republican Party and the extremes. And we're going to have a lot of tests of that this year. You're going to see some of that in the Supreme Court race in April. Yep. There's also a special election for the state legislature, for the state Senate in which yep. one of the big election deniers is running in the primary. And so the Republicans have a lot of challenges and a lot of things to sort out. And Voss should be the clear leader on that. Um, but there's quite a bit of evidence that his ability to control the Republican Party is far less than it was even a couple of years ago. Yeah, and I look across the pond from you at Michigan, where the uh- Republican Party and the Republican Party leadership went full MAGA. Um, and within a few years, they went from having absolutely everything to getting shut out. So I, I mean, voters are not as crazy as the leadership of the current Republican Party. I just they're trapped and it's not a good spot for them. Yeah. Right. You've summed it up. And the question is, in a few years, will Wisconsin go the way of Michigan and ultimately the, the state on the other side, uh, Minnesota. And yep. I can tell you that the voting pattern suggests that that is well within the realm of possibility. But this Supreme Court race in April is going to decide a lot of that, because if you get a liberal majority on the Supreme Court, then you're going to get uh, an effort, I think, to address gerrymandering. If you address gerrymandering, and you have fair elections for the legislature, then pretty much uh, world of difference. 
Yeah. I mean, they had an independent yeah. commission in Michigan, and that began to crack it open. That and this this is mm-hmm. the parallel reality. If the Supreme Court shifts and simply draws fair district lines, you have the possibility of uh, a real big change in the legislature. And you also have as many as two congressional seats that are currently Republican that could end up going Democratic. Wow. Wow. I mean, that is a big difference. And that, that New York- something people in Washington are paying attention to. Right. And then, then all we need is New York to get its act together and um, be a remarkable difference. Well, as always, uh, John, it's, it's fabulous to talk to you. Really interesting on on public health, on the White House, on national politics, and on my, you know, my favorite place to go ice fishing. <laughs> well, come on up. It's very cold today. I've been talking to you uh, literally. Uh, I've been outside. And so I can tell you that uh, if you wanted to go ice fishing, this wouldn't be that bad a day for it. Well, I, I, I'm tied up today, but, you know, okay, can't really do the show from the ice, but who knows? You can do it anyway. Thank friend. Yep. <laughs> thank you, John. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Be strong. You take care. Bye. Bye. All right. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to turn to a little warmer place, Tennessee. Stay tuned. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay. Welcome back. It's a little after 2.30 here in the upper Midwest. And I am now joined by Holly McCall, who is editor-in-chief of the Tennessee Lookout. Hello, Holly. Hey, Edwin. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm just back from Governor Bill Lee's second inauguration. Oh, well, take a minute and tell us about that. Well, you know, it was unusually big and celebratory for a second term. In Tennessee, um, usually governors don't have a big hoo-ha, as we say in the South, for their second term. Mm -hmm. It's usually very low-key. But this has featured all of the uh, bells and whistles of a first term. Uh, Governor Lee talked about how great Tennessee is doing, what we are leading in, and we can certainly get to what we are leading in. Um, So it was really something. And then he talked about toxic critics, and I might be included in that list of toxic critics. Yeah, well, uh, I there is a lot. Let's talk about this. So I want to talk about that, and I – I guess what I wanted to talk to you about first, um, and it may get back to the governor, but hey, fire away. I, I, I read this piece in the New York Times by Margaret Rankle about mm-hmm. how state legislatures are attacking the power of, well, how red legislators are attacking the power of blue cities. And the case study was Nashville. Um, and I think you know that very well. So I, w- I want you to explain that to our audience, and then we can talk about that. So there's been a fractious relationship between Tennessee's supermajority Republican legislature and the city of Nashville for some years now. Nashville is one of the blue areas in a pretty conservative state, um, although the mayor's elections here are nonpartisan. Typically, there are folks who identify as Democrats who win. Joe Biden handily has won in Nashville. Barack Obama handily won. Hillary Clinton handily won in, in the metropolitan Nashville area. So the most recent 
um, big spot of trouble is last summer, the uh, Metro National Council voted against a contract with the Republican National Committee to have the next convention here, the next national convention here. And that did not sit well with the legislature. Um, and so they have got a the House Majority Leader has a bill to slash the size of Metro Council in half. Um, admittedly, it is a big metro council, a big uh, city council. It is 40 people. Um, it does cover the entire county instead of being just the city. Uh, but, yes, it would cut the council from 40 people to 20 people. And um, But i got to tell you, Edwin, I do think that if it had not been for this Republican National Convention thing, they would have found some other reason to make a move like this. It is. Uh, let me go back to the first vote. It's pretty gutsy of a city to say, you know what, I know a national convention wants to come here, but we are not interested. You know, it is, especially for a town that is so based on tourism like Nashville is. But I think we just have to look. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Uh, I wouldn't really want any national convention in my city because they're, they're money losers. They always lose money. Nashville is not big enough for the Democratic convention. And what city would actually want the Republican convention here? First of all, we saw what happened on January 6th, <laughs> a, a violent uprising. Um, Nashville, I mean, the Tennessee governor has made this like just like open state for guns. So everybody's going to come armed. Why would you want that in your city to say nothing about the protests that are going to break out? And I don't blame protesters, but you're going to have like likely fighting in the streets. Yeah. You know, you're talking to a Chicagoan who was, I mean, I wasn't old, but I remember 1968 and we had fighting in the streets and it was a scar that stayed with us for a long, long time. Well, my husband is a native of Chicago. Um, He is 69. I knew I liked you. Yeah. Well, listen, if all of my family members up there listen to your show, your ratings are going to increase greatly for this for this um, this particular show. But, yes, yeah, so my husband was 15 at the time of the 68 convention and is still bitter yeah. that his parents would not let him go to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so so they said no for all kinds of good reasons. And then the legislature said, well, to heck with you. We're cutting you in half. But you think that would have happened anyway, because they're just. There's this notion that, um, you know, you can sort of uh, take the power of municipalities and make it state power if you control the state. Yep, that's true. And so for years, so we've had a Republican majority since 2008. Um, we had a, well, we got a Republican supermajority in 2010. And it's not to say that Democrats didn't do inappropriate things. They didn't, they gerrymandered as well beforehand, but I'm 58 and I've been around the state legislature since I first paged there in 1980 at the age of 15. And I don't remember democratic legislators, legislators being this malicious towards their constituents. And the fact of the matter is Tennessee gets about 40% of their funding from the federal government. And in the state, most, yeah, the next biggest chunk of state funding comes from the city of Nashville. So, uh, they still choose to mess with Nashville. They have messed with the city's education formula. They're always jacking with something. And so, you know, I've talked to several Metro Council members who kind of felt like, look, there was no reason to go along with this convention because if it wasn't that, they were going to find some other reason to screw with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm, you know, uh, Nashville has grown tremendously. And I assume that in that growth, lots of people from all over the country have moved there. 
so it's a it, it's now a little mm, it, it's not like old Tennessee it's like new Tennessee it is new that, Tennessee right and there's a backlash to new all over the country yeah it's um so we are Tennessee is experiencing a huge amount of population growth and most of that is coming into the middle Tennessee area around Nashville now I would say that I live in the county that is immediately south of Davidson County, Nashville. It is Williamson County. It is where Senator Marsha Blackburn lives. It is where our governor is from. We grew up together. Um, the Senate Majority Leader is from here, the former Speaker of the House. And most of the conservative people aren't moving into Nashville and Davidson County. They're moving into the collar yeah. counties like the one I live in. And yeah. Nashville yeah. still remains pretty liberal. And I just don't see that that's going to change anytime soon. Yeah. Well, I mean, people are moving to Tennessee for all kinds of reasons. One is that it is just beautiful. Oh, thank you. They are moving for all kinds of reasons. You know, Nashville has become like Austin was 15 or 20 years ago. There's a mm-hmm. lot to do here. You can get to the mountains in a couple of hours. There are lakes all around. So it is beautiful. The music scene is it's always been vibrant. You can hear any kind of music in dozens of clubs any night of the week. And then there are other, you know, there are a lot of businesses that are moving here. So people are moving here because of their work. And that is interesting because you have some companies here that are fairly progressive that support the rights of LGBTQ Americans. And yet they're coming to a state that is not friendly to LGBTQ Americans, but the workers who are coming here are. And I think that's actually probably going to dilute some of the conservative areas outside of Nashville, and it's certainly not going to make Nashville more conservative. Yeah. So, so the, the I mean, you have a, you, your Republican supermajority is like every other one in the country. They've sort of been taken over by the MAGA crowd. A little bit. And, you know, I talk to us about your senators. I want to understand them better. You know, I I once heard, I mean, right. I just, you know, they when you listen to them one on one, they can sound sensible. And then all of a sudden, like they veer into into madness. You know, um, let's start with U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn. I have yep. a friend who is a journalist in Washington, D.C., and as she said to me recently that she's just fascinated with Senator Blackburn, who does not get a lot of attention nationally, but is just as big of a MAGA wingnut as, you know, Josh Hawley or whoever. Both uh, Senator Blackburn and our junior senator, uh, Bill Haggerty, were prepared to vote against certifying the election until after the insurrection. And why they changed their mind, you know, I can't be certain. Uh, There's a rumor that one of their advisors, who was a very bright person, told them it was probably best for their long-term political futures to change their vote. Um, But Marsha Blackburn... You know, people in Tennessee, Democrats in Tennessee, like to say she's stupid. And she's in no way stupid because I'm going to tell you, first of all, not too many stupid people get to be U.S. senators. And she is just Mm -hmm. as wily as a fox. Um, I would not be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised to see her on a short list to be uh, former President Trump's vice presidential running mate. She has been with him since his beginnings. I think she was probably one of the first elected officials when she was a congressman to, um, you know, to sign on with him. And some of the things she says are just ludicrous. And just recently, I think it was on Monday, she got called out the task by Reverend Martin Luther King's 
a daughter because she put something online, you know, some Twitter thing about justice, yada, yada. And this is what Reverend Martin Luther King uh, meant. And, of course, his daughter said, well, actually, let me tell you what he meant. So she something, and then Senator, Senator Bill Haggerty, when he ran in 2020, um, he was the more moderate candidate of the two in the Republican primary. And there were plenty of people who knew him who said, oh, he's just trying to get elected. Uh, he'll be fine when he gets up to D.C. Well, the only platform plank he had in 2020 was I've been endorsed by Trump. And that is literally what his yard sign said, Haggerty endorsed by Trump. And he's gotten up to D.C. and you know, the first thing he did was sign on with this group to not certify the election. So I, I don't, you know, he's to, to say that he is not as MAGA is such a fine line. Like there's MAGA and there's more MAGA and less MAGA. Yeah, well, none of it is um, is what, you know, I, I was going to say liberal democracies, but I, I don't mean it in the left of center Right of right. liberal conservatives. You mean it with I mean, small liberal. I mean it in the you know sort of old British sense that everybody gets yep. to vote, right? Yep. I mean the idea that 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 we're a democracy and everybody's vote matters. I don't know why that's up for grabs, and the, neither of your senators, um, you know, is willing to try and protect that right for people. Well, you know, again, that is. Um, that is what Tennessee is like now. There have been multiple suits. There's been legislation to try to uh, rein in voting, uh, vote, uh, voter registration drives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a bill several years ago. I think it was in 2019 to criminalize large-scale voter drives. And as it happened, I, like I know, I'm, you can probably envision me sitting here with my aluminum foil hat on. But in 2018, there was something called the Black Voter Project. And uh, a couple of black-led organizations registered 200,000 new voters that year. And so in 2019, was it a surprise that we see you know, legislation to try to make sure that uh, – to criminalize people who are either paying canvassers to help them with voter registration? Uh, so, so this is just – this is Holly, I don't get it. I mean, let's – I want to just – before I call it what it really is – the, the, yes, there was the not this thing. there was not this effort right to rein in large scale voter registration when the moral majority was doing it in church after church after church all across right. Tennessee and other places right then it was like right. oh isn't this great right yeah it's um look let's I will call it what it is there is an element of racism. Uh, but they also the other thing I think there is a worry about young people registering to vote and voting because you know since when was it that eighteen year olds started voting was that sixty eight or seventy two was that the first seventy two first person okay I think it was seventy two so, as I'm sure you remember, there was all this talk of the youth vote in every presidential election. There's talk about what the youth vote is going to do, and it doesn't really materialize. But in the last presidential election and in the midterms, it has really started – I think we're starting to see a change. And in Tennessee, if you, you cannot use a college ID to vote. You must have a driver's mm-hmm. license. You cannot even <clears> – <throat> You cannot even vote absentee the first time. So if you're an 18-year-old and you go to college and it's a presidential election year, let's say, you cannot vote absentee in November. You have to return to your home. So let's say you're in school at the University of Tennessee and you're originally from Memphis. That means you would have to drive 
six hours across the state to go vote in person uh, rather than being able to absentee vote. So there is some racism, but it's not just that. They're really trying to shut down, I think, what they see as traditionally progressive or more progressive um, demographics. Holly, the beginning of this show, I was talking to the Washington Post, Philip Bump, about his new book, which is fantastic. And it is entirely about the transition from the baby boomers to what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and he made mm-hmm. he made exactly the same point um, that, well, you know, great the, minds think alike. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you got a state. Am I right? This is the state that made a whole lot of news in the middle of last year for a school district banning mouse. Right. Which was uh, that's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Um, that was that was in East Tennessee. But, you know, we're still having fights over book bans. And you stay on top of these things. So you, you mentioned earlier when you were first brought up the legislature, you said, as is the case with other supermajority Republican legislatures, we still have the book banning issue here. But the Tennessee Lookout is part of state's newsroom, and we now have about 35 outlets across the country. And so editors will talk amongst ourselves. And we all see the same patterns. So the book banning thing is not just in Tennessee, as you know. I think mm-hmm. a lot of this leg- a lot of this legislation that we're seeing uh, about school librarians and drag queens. I don't know where all of that's coming from, but you're seeing almost identical legislation across the country. And one of the organizations that has been known for putting out sort of a template for each year for conservative right wing legislation is ALEC, the American Legislative yep. Exchange Council. So I don't know how much they are involved in this. There's also a group that I'm sure you're aware of called Moms for Liberty. Yep. One of their, they started in Florida, and one of their earlier chapters was in Williamson County, where I live just south of Nashville. And they have been very vocal about book bannings, everything from uh, Ruby Bridges, who was, of course, a, a child mm-hmm. at the time who was early integrated um, Arkansas schools, and they wanted to ban her book. Uh, there's the whole critical race theory, which, again, like no, nobody's teaching freaking critical race theory. That's a legal construct. Um, so anyway, I, th- I think I'm starting to babble a little bit now. My brain might be. No, playing, you, no but, Holly, uh, you're right. on. And, and our listeners, they know Alec. We've talked about it a lot here. Um, oh, good. Good. All of that. And you, you, what you're pointing out is sort of the nationalization of local politics And this effort that, and I, you know, I don't know what the future of the Republican Party is because Americans, by and large, have rejected now in three elections in a row the MAGA uh, handbook, right? Americans Mm -hmm. don't love book burning. They don't like treating people badly because they're different. They don't, I mean, they don't like most Americans didn't believe the election was stolen, don't believe it was stolen. You know, the, the MAGA mm, gospel isn't going anywhere, except that it's taken hold of the Republican Party. And I wonder what you think in in your state. I mean, in Michigan, um, you know, they, they ended up having a commission write the, the legislative districts. And in a you know, a period of, you know, 10 years, really, it went from the Republicans controlling everything in the state to the Republicans controlling nothing in the state mm. because the, the because they had great Democratic organizing, but also the MAGA message 
just he was rejected by a lot of conservatives who say, look, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm I'm conservative on some on on some things. I'm not a progressive, but I'm not insane. I love my democracy and I don't want to treat people terribly. And I'm, I, I wonder what you think the future of the Republican Party in Tennessee is if it fully embraces this um, crazy stuff. So, as you imagine, I have many thoughts about this. Um, first of all, I, I am a student of history, and I've reached the age at which you, you, you see patterns in politics and in history. And I watched the Democratic Party, you know, I think about 1988, and I will not go down this uh, path very long, but 1988, the Democratic Party in Tennessee looked glorious. We had a majority of Democratic of our congressional delegation were Democrats. They were young. They were smart. Al Gore was a senator. We had a Democratic governor. But at the sa- that same year, Marsha Blackburn was starting the first Young Republicans chapter outside of East Tennessee uh, in my home county. And so mm-hmm. there's been this shift. And I think eventually, you know, Democrats did a lot of stupid things. As I mentioned, they, were, they became corrupt. They became complacent. We uh, Democrats lost the legislature in 2008, not all of this, but the Democratic... Uh, Al Gore lost it when he ran for president. Yes, he did. He did. That uh, that was a wake-up call for me. It was There was a lot of complacency, but I'm starting to see the same thing among the Republican power structure in Tennessee. The speaker of the last Speaker of the House uh, was indicted in the summer. We just saw a leading state senator uh, was indicted and will be sentenced in March. Um, I'm leaving out some other indictment. We've seen like Oh, another state legislature pled guilty to uh, like mail fraud, wire mm-hmm. racketeering. So mm-hmm. I'm seeing this pattern. I also think that as Trump becomes less popular, we're going to start seeing some of the Republican lawmakers here changing positions. And it might not be for the right reason, but practically they're going to see that that, that brand of politics is – not popular. And literally the day after the midterm elections, when it became apparent that um, I can't use the word, the phrase I really want to use, but when it became apparent that Trump's candidates had not done well, you started to see already one of the most conservative lawmakers from East Tennessee go on Twitter and say, well, Trump did some good things, but he's not where it's at anymore. And so you're like, huh, right. that. The, mm-hmm. the, the rats mm-hmm. are starting to leave the ship. You know, Tennessee's always been a conservative state. The, de- the Democrats have not traditionally been liberal. It's a, you know, it's one of the old yep. states of the Confederacy. The South has never been a liberal place. Uh, but our Democrats, we had a guy named Howard Baker, who many of your listeners might not remember him, but he was like a true statesman. And he was the person who was on the Watergate committee who first used the phrase, what did the president know and when did he know it? And so I I think we're going to start seeing a shift towards moderation, but it's not here yet. And I'll tell you the other thing. Democrats don't organize for squat in Tennessee. There is no Democratic – there's no effort to organize a bench, even though there are a number of young, particularly young black lawmakers from Memphis who would, like, make great – they've got great potential, but there's no – organized effort around promoting them. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, the difference in Michigan was a commitment to building a party apparatus and to organizing and organizing, not just at election time, but year round. Same in Wisconsin. Makes a huge difference. Yep. That's interesting. And and that's what you need. And I think, you know, the DNC is not going to ride in and save 
Tennessee. I think, you know, Republicans don't care about Tennessee because they don't have to. They know they're going to win. And I think national Democrats have about given Tennessee up for a lost cause. So Tennessee, if Tennessee Democrats want to start picking some seats back off, you know, uh, I think they need to start looking at like small local races, uh, which is actually what the Republicans did in the 80s and 90s here. They had a program called Red to the Roots, and they started mm-hmm. filing partisan primaries for city councils, county commissions, school board elections are now partisan. And, you know, Democrats in Tennessee, God love them, get they get distracted by the shiny objects. They're trying to think about, like, how do we get rid of Marsha Blackburn? And Edwin, nobody's getting rid of Marsha Blackburn. There's not a Democrat. Like, Jesus Christ himself could not win a statewide race as a Democrat. Okay, so you got to go and win those school board races. Start at the bottom. But that is what good organizing does. And I can't believe they're not people who want to run for something running for something there. But that's interesting. Really interesting. Well, well, I'll tell you, I did run for office in 2016. Um, because I had just moved back to my home county. I'd been living in Nashville and other states even. And I moved back to my home county, and, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to take this on. The lawmaker I was running against, the representative, had sexually harassed at least or assaulted at least 26 women. Um, He ended up dropping out of the primary two weeks before the primary election because he was forced out by Republicans. But I think if he'd stayed in the primary, he would have won anyway. And, you know, my family's been here literally since right after the Revolutionary War. My mother was an an elected official. She'd been well known. My dad was captain of the high school football team. He was in World War II in the Marines. I mean, I think my family has some respect. And I ran as a Democrat. I tried to be pragmatic. Hey, our roads are terrible. And I got blown out 70-30. And so that's when I thought, okay, well, we have a problem here that is not going to get solved instantly. And it's it's a long game, and it might take 10, 20 years. From when you start, and what you're telling me is the Democrats haven't yet started. I am not seeing that level of organization, no. And there are, look, like, there are great individual organizers and there are great groups, but there's not, um, there's no unity. Yep. Well, that gives me something to think about for sure, because uh, I talked to a lot of organizers and I'm going to be asking them all about Tennessee. Holly, I, uh, this is the first time we've talked and uh, it's fabulous. I've learned a ton um, and I hope we can keep this conversation going uh, over the course of the election cycle, because I think there's some it may be not competitive in Tennessee, but you have a pretty interesting seat to see what's going on. Well, I think so, too. And listen, I really enjoy the opportunity to talk to you. I will always flap my gums about the state of Tennessee and Tennessee politics. I'm a devotee of what goes on here Um like I have no life. Um, Twitter is my. Home. I doubt that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I love Chicago. So listen, you come down and see me, and I'm going to look you up the next time I'm with their visiting family. That is a f- wonderful uh, promise. I'm going to hold you to it. All right, buddy. Thank you, thank you Holly. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Have a good weekend. Okay. Yep, you too. Yeah. That was Holly McCall, editor-in-chief of the Tennessee Lookout. We're going to take a break for the news, and then we're going to talk political organizing when we come back. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. 
Welcome back. It's a little after three o'clock in the chilly upper Midwest. And now I'm joined by really a remarkable political organizer. Bob Creamer has been an organizer and a strategist for, well, for long enough that he played a big role in my very first campaign, uh, which was back in the Stone Ages. Um, he founded Illinois Citizens Action, built it into one of the biggest progressive political organizations in the country, and he's now a partner in Democracy Partners. Um, Bob, I don't think you've missed any political fight that needed to be fought in in the last few decades. Um, welcome. Okay, can't hear you, though. Uh, Paul, can you help? Well, while we're waiting, um, uh, I thought Holly was interesting. I haven't, we hadn't talked before, but um, I'm sure surprised at some of the things she told me about Tennessee, notably the lack of organizing by Democrats there. And that's a question that I'm going to have for organizers for some time now. Because um, I just don't think we need, we can't leave any state alone. We have to fight on 50 states here. Um, and we really should be taking the battle, uh, you know, to them. I mean, I remember, you know, when uh, we were fighting against Lindsey Graham, you know, uh, and it was a tough fight. And he, he won against Jamie Harrison, but Jamie kept him and Republican money tied up in South Carolina. And, um, you know, maybe we won Wisconsin, uh, maybe won the presidential election, um, in part because the Republicans had to defend on their home turf. So I am all for taking the fight to them. Anyway, um, uh, Paul, any progress? Oh, well, um, Bob, if you're listening, uh, hang up. <laughs> we'll try them again in, in, a, in a minute. Hey, um, I wanted to... You know, we're going to have calls from all of you at, in, when I'm done with Bob, you know, at the bottom of the hour at 773-763-9278. And I want to just tee up some things for when we do talk. Okay. I'll tee them up after we talk to Bob. Uh, Bob. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened there, but here we are. Yes. Here, here we are. Well, you know, stuff happens all the time. It's live radio. That's the fun of it. Absolutely. Hey, I, I've been on, you know, for the last couple hours and since I've been on, uh, the news of Ron Klain's um, imminent departure from the White House was announced. And I just I, I'd love to get your take on what you think that means for, you know, progressives and, and uh, the work that we need to do. Well, I think it's a shame because Ron Klain is a, uh, a good friend and a wonderful advocate for progressive values and has done a great job as uh, chief of staff. I can understand it's a very trying job. I mean, it's a very tough job to be chief of staff in the White House. And I, um, I'm assuming I have not seen this that uh, they've been they, they they announced the successor yet or, or no? Nope, nope, they have not. They've just said they will announce uh, officially his departure and a successor at some point, but they haven't done so yet. Well, we we can just hope that it's a, another excellent choice. There are a lot of great people at the White House. Um, yeah, the political director, the Deputy Chief of Staff, uh, uh, there, there are some very good people there. So, but but Ron will be a hard person to replace. He's he's terrific. Yeah. All right. Well, l let me change the subject a, a little bit. Um, I, I, 
you know, I think in our lifetime, um, America's made a lot of progress towards equity, towards racial justice, towards progressive values. But for you and for me and for millions of our fellow citizens, it sure feels like it's just the beginning, that we have a long way yet to go. But to millions of our fellow citizens, it feels like we've gone too fast, we're changing the country too quick, and they want to take it back, right? So um, what are the big fights that you see we're in right now, right now? And then let's talk about the ones we have to prepare for in the next couple of years. Well, maybe I should say a word about my thought about the overall arc of the next two years. I mean, quite clearly, the House of Representatives is the real speakers of the House are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene right now. Um, they'll be doing investigations. Um, but it, there are a number of things we have to get done in the meantime. In general, I think our top priority is to keep united and motivated the progressive Majority in America, and let's remember, the majority of people in America are progressives. I mean, they adhere to the values that we share. Um, and uh, and frankly, to uh, uh, fan the flames of the Republican Civil War, which uh, is is going to be you know, breaking out all over the place. Already has, of course, we saw it all on TV, and, and it's going to continue. Um, the um, In the near term, we've got this... Um, issue having to do with what's called the debt ceiling. Yeah. It's uh, the biggest short-term battle that will, where, where the other side will try and use, try and hold hostage the, uh, the, um, the, the things we care about, like Social Security and Medicare, uh, to, uh, to, to the uh, raising of the debt ceiling, which is not really aptly named. I mean, the debt of the United States, the deficit, has gone down under Joe Biden. Because he raised yep. taxes on the rich, on wealthy people. It went up during Donald Trump when he got rid of taxes. Dramatically, on, right. Yep. On wealthy people. Yep. And yep. Uh, uh, so it's really about whether we pay our, pay our bills to the people who, are, who don't want, want us to owe money to them and, replace, and, and, and finance that through, through people who do want to loan money to the government. Um, but... Um, this is a critical, critical battle. It could lead to the default of the United States, which would be unbelievable and do enormous damage both to our economy and our ability to have jobs and, and mm-hmm. healthy economy and also to the world economy. Bob, here don't we have allies in well, the most unnatural of allies at all? But I would think, you know, the business roundtable, the Chamber of Commerce, people who are not, you know, friendly to progressives, they share this terror that will default, right? They can't imagine that would cost them um, everything. Yeah, that's absolutely right, and and that's one of the reasons because because people understand across the uh, the spectrum how how critical this is that uh, we've never defaulted. Um, right. right now, there are some people who are uh, in a position to leverage their small slice of power um, to, to try and uh, uh, try and change that. And, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how that all develops. I do believe there's certainly a path getting this done. I mean, the, in the Senate, uh, we can certainly get enough votes to pass. And in the, in the House, the question is whether it will be brought to the floor. And there, there's one thing that a lot of people have talked about in the House representatives, 
too much, and that's discharge petitions, which are still possible. Yep. That means yep. if, if 51% of the members sign a petition at demanding that some be brought to the floor, then under the rules it has to be brought to the floor. So we have to get some Republicans on board uh, to do that, and we'll pass a debt ceiling increase if uh, that's the approach that has to be taken. Yeah. So, so that um, I just feel like I, I want to talk to you about Republican politics, I guess, because they fascinate me. And I know it's not your thing or my thing, but you did talk about this civil war. You know, I look at the, the, the Republican Party leadership in Michigan, and they've gone completely nuts, MAGA, right? And, and because of that, and because of very good organizing on the Democratic side, the state went from all Republican sweep of all the offices in the legislature to all Democrat sweep of all the offices in the legislature. And I think, you know, the, the, the same thing could happen in Wisconsin. They're trying to figure out whether a conservative Republican Party will survive the MAGA challenge. And if they lose, if the conservatives lose and it becomes all MAGA, you know, we got some great organizers in Wisconsin who could flip that state too. So your sense that, that I mean, Americans aren't MAGA, right? That's a, it's a hard core, but it's like 30%. That's not going to exactly carry the right. day. One of the things that yeah. uh, I like to try and dispel is this notion, oh, the country's polarized like right down the middle. No, it's not. Most people favor the full range of progressive items on the agenda, from, from freedom of reproductive choice to, uh, you know, banning assault weapons to, to, right. to, uh, to raise reasonably priced insurance. Yeah. To, to reasonably priced insurance. I mean, yeah. Medicare for all, frankly, I mean, for, you know, available Medicare for every, I mean, our, our, our healthcare coverage for everybody. I mean, yep. I mean, cutting the income gap by raising taxes on, on billionaires, all of those things are very popular in America. But they're not translated yep. into policy, partially because one of our, you know, uh, branches of parliament, uh, parliament in the United States, the the Senate is the least democratic parliamentary body in the Western world. Remember that yeah. people in in uh, California have, or pardon me, in Wyoming have thirty eight times more power <laughs> in the Senate than people in yep. California. Uh, yep, yep. But and, and the filibuster makes that even worse. It means that twenty percent of the population, people who represent twenty percent of the population, have a veto power in American policy. And that's crazy. Madison. Would yeah, we should get rid of that filibuster. And absolutely. I didn't used to think so. I now do. No, I, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I helped organize a campaign that partially reduced it a number of years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, to, it used to be the pointies and judges and everybody else. Uh, but uh, now it's policy only, and, and we've got to get rid of that. Otherwise, we'd have had the full Build Back Better agenda passed, which included massive investments in the care economy. Included yep. uh, uh, the we'd have passed the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Freedom to Vote Act, that would have really locked in a number of protections for everybody to be able to vote. Uh, I mean, the good news is the last election, of course, we stopped the red wave and the supposed red wave, and and in a number of states, won victories that assured that they can't autocratically completely control some of these swing states because we, yeah, yeah. we won the election apparatus. And Wisconsin coming up here soon is a is an election for <clears throat> Supreme, me, Court. For Supreme Court. And that's yeah. a key race, not just in Wisconsin, but because it may help decide the presidential election. Yep. Yep. 
So, but I'm confident we have great organizers in Wisconsin. Oh, Ben Wickler, the, the chairman of the Democratic Party, there's the best. He's fabulous. He's fabulous. He and Spencer Four Barnes in Michigan, they're awesome, awesome organizers. And um, uh, I kind of wish, now let's just turn to the state that you and I both live in and love, Illinois. Mm. Illinois, uh, because it's been a, because Democrats have controlled so much of it for so long, we do not actually do modern organizing like they do in Wisconsin and Michigan. We still rely on some some old ways. I think we're in a transition now, but it would be nice to see us, you know, have a full on, like, like help people organize all the time, be part of, you know, neighbors getting out and getting involved in their issues in a way that makes a difference all over the state. Um, do you think we'll get there? Well, I think so. I mean, I hope so. Sure. That, that is, yeah. you're absolutely right. I know, uh, yeah. my wife, Jane Schakowsky, member of Congress, uh, her political operation full time year round, and tries to engage and one of the best. Lots, lots, lots of people. Uh, one of the best. Industry. Yep. But but yep. we've got to do that every place. I mean, every place. And and leading up to the next election, by the way, um, whether it's in Illinois or uh, particularly in the swing states for presidential races, we need to start now to build apparatus to engage people in the. In exactly what you're way you're talking about, I mean, one of the things we, that, that that the old precinct captains did was mm-hmm. create a sense of they knew the community, they knew these people, they helped deliver for them. And I'm not saying that was a great idea, patronage, it's not. But we need to do our best to maintain that good part of it, and and make politics part of delivering for your neighbor and community and 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 working together. And yeah. the indivisible chapters have done that to some extent, but we really yep. do need that in the in the party structure of the Democratic yeah. Party. We have to give on ramps for every citizen who wants to get involved and to make their community better to be able to give some time and support them to do it, and then maybe they'll come back again and again and again. It builds commu- healthy communities while it builds a healthier politics. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And and I I hope that the state Democratic Party and its new leadership is going to really move that way. I mean, I know the governor has a would like to see it move that way. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, Governor Prisker, in my judgment, of course, has done a marvelous job and uh, uh, and, and move move the ball down the field. Boy, think about it. Wasn't that many years ago we had Bruce Rauner as the governor. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I- I mean, Democratic governors have really delivered in the last few years um, all over the country. And again, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, up against, um, you know, some real challenges. I mean, either bu- crazy budget ones in Illinois or crazy political ones like uh, those two other states. But the governors have managed to do the job, which is, you know, it's a job governing. And it's not all politics. It's the hard work of finding the money to put it to roads and bridges and schools. And uh, when we've done it, I'm just so proud of that work. Absolutely. And, and, and Illinois, you remember when Illinois was a real swing state and it, it, uh, wasn't that many years ago. And still we can't take it for granted. We just had a Republican governor. Um, uh, Thanks to the Lord. We won the Supreme court seats that we won so that, uh, we have a decent progressive Supreme Court. Um, yeah. Can't be, can't allow 
craziness to 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 eliminate or limit democratic decision making. Uh, well, and, and on the issue, I mean, the, the, the really. When you think about the last election, we do our Supreme Court elections in districts. And Illinois is the place now, the only place for, I don't know, 30 million women to have reproductive choice, right? Because all the states around Illinois don't have that anymore. Um, and, and the future of our Supreme Court rested on two Supreme Court districts. There were like 30,000 people making a decision for 30 million women. I mean, it was an, it, absolutely mind-blowing. Happily, it I went mean, the right way. Luckily, they made the right decision because yep. there were organizations like Citizen Action Illinois that really did a good job of organizing for the uh, for the Supreme Court race. I mean, a lot of times these races that are down ballot are super critical, right, as you know. And uh, and that was one of them this time. And, uh, yep. and yep. people came through. Absolutely came through. I mean, in general, you know, I'm... I agree with Martin Luther King, right? The, the moral universe bends toward justice, but we've got the hands that make it that way. And we have to – the other thing I think the progressive movement really needs to do is project its vision of the future, not just what it shouldn't have happened, but what can be, what possibilities there are, and, uh, uh, and inspire – Young, a whole generation of young people become more involved. A whole generation of young people is more progressive than ever. That's no, absolutely more progressive, better educated, more urban, more progressive. Um, uh, th th we have these two challenges, Bob, for a while: the aging baby boomers and all of those issues of aging that are going to be. I mean, it's you know that's a giant chunk of America that is now sixty-five and older. Right. So there's there's all of that. And they have financial issues and health issues. And then you have millennials who are saying, I, I can't I'll never buy a house. What's come on now? you got to have a society where I have the same kind of ability as you older guys had. And so we have this generational tension that creates real policy challenges for government that we can't get to if we're busy arguing about MAGA nonsense all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And certainly not if I got to tell you, Evan, I, the Republicans who are raising the prospect of cutting back or limiting or, or making it I mean, if Social Security is some kind of a are privatizing Social Security. Wow. I mean, that's like most Americans fully understand that they pay into Social Security and by God, they better get their benefits better be there for ordinary people, for everybody in America. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest, that's kind of one of the third rails of politics, and they want to clamp their hand on it, be my guest. I helped my guess, campaign right? to prevent the privatization of Social Security under George Bush, and it yep. was um, a pleasure. political <laughs> turning point that really turned the tide, and he just won that 2004 election, and yep. promised to do all sorts of things, and, uh, uh, and instead he tried to privatize Social Security. And that just set up the 2006 victory for Democrats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and and I just can't believe that some of these Republicans are talking about that again. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And I think the the I don't know if they're, you know, the conservatives, um, not the MAGA, but the sort of traditional what was left of them, conservative Republicans, they're going to lose their party entirely because their base has been 
and they're partly to blame for it. Their base has been radicalized. And, you know, I mean, the people like to think that you and me and people who are progressives are America's radicals, but we're not. The values that we're fighting for are like solidly American values supported by majorities of Americans. They're the radicals and the radical thing they're fighting for, Americans are going to tell them to go jump in Lake Michigan. Absolutely. I mean, we are the mainstream of American politics and we ought to clearly behave that way. We're not some poor, uh, we're the mainstream. The other thing is, though, I do think we have to recognize very clearly and forcefully that the there are a lot of folks who believe they have been left behind in in the new America, and that became the Trump base. That became the the fodder for or the, the the fertile ground on which Trump's racist mm-hmm. blaming came on. But a lot of their Concerns about their lives are dead on. I mean, if you can't get a good job, if you if your factory town has been denuded of manufacturing facilities because they've moved offshore, uh, or if you're if if you don't have broadband and you can't work on a real mm-hmm. you know a, you know new information technology job, you got to move somewhere and all the kids leave and it's now presence. Inflation Reduction Act included universal broadband access, which is huge mm-hmm. for those areas. Uh, yep. uh, another thing that would be really helpful is if, is high-speed rail in the United States. We're the only industrial country in the world that doesn't have high-speed rail. China has 25,000 miles of it. And yeah. if, if you lived in the Quad Cities and we had a high-speed rail line between there and, the, and Chicago, you could stay living where you are. Come, to, come to work downtown. And work downtown. Yep. It's Because it's yep. just a commute every day. I mean, it's yep. and in China and Japan and France and Germany and all over Europe, you can do that. Um, so it's and not to speak of the fact that high-speed rail is also four times as efficient in terms of carbon discharge per passenger mile uh, and, than, than, than either airlines or, or automobiles. So it's it, it's it's be, an idea we need uh, to ha- we need to have. It's a great idea. Um, and also, I, I guess just yeah, and it's just an example though of the things we've got. These these factory towns, these these small cities, downstate Illinois, elsewhere, in, in Wisconsin, and so on. We got to take seriously their needs and make the investments necessary to allow life to be good, to allow you know people to have the opportunities. To be in those communities and thrive and don't feel left behind by the coast. Yeah, you have never been the Democrat who says, what's the matter with Kansas and made fun of people who've had a tough time. I think some of our of our party members, um, some Democrats have have not understood the humanity of everybody in the country um, sufficiently. That's never been your problem, and and um, and it is deeply distressing when I hear it from people. Yeah, and it just it <laughs> creates fertile ground for racist resentment, other baiting, yeah, demagogues who come on and say, "Oh, you got you know what the real problem is? It's it's the Hispanics, it's the blacks, it's the Jews, it's the whoever," and it's uh, uh, and and you know that's yeah. So we have to address this problem that we have of increasing, uh, should we call it, fascist orientation in the United States, yep. and it has grown. 
uh, and its root as well as making very clear how unacceptable any of that is to the core of American values. All right, one last question. You, since the, a lot of this show that I've been on today has been about, you know, the, the baby boomers and what follows. So we have done organizing in this generation of ours on a lot of it, um, and you have done more than most. Do you see a commitment to organizing and organizing where people are in the next generation? And are there organizations springing up that really are going to assure that this continues? One of the partners in Democracy Partners has founded an organization called Blue Future that uh, engages Mm -hmm. young people in exactly that kind of activity. There are uh, online just a large number of young Mm -hmm. people who are really engaged in in mobilizing people using the tools of uh, social media, which, by the way, have to be fully integrated with real organizing. That is to say, people, you know, real relationships, you know, yep. right? organizing is not about, you know, being on your computer all the time. It's about knowing people, physically seeing them, <laughs> developing relationships. But all that can play a role. And a lot of these young people are are heavily into social media as a means, and that's a terrific thing. Um, yeah, I'm pretty excited about the prospects. We have to provide more opportunities for young people to take the aspiration to be to have a meaningful life and do something important for their neighbors and and it's right there and and give it expression in organizational structures that really enable them to to do something important. I mean, you know, and I I'm I'm a, I'm a believer that the principal self-interest of human beings is meaning in life, you know doing something mm-hmm. significant and mm-hmm. we can answer that call if we that 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 self-interest that address that self-interest if we present a vision and provide the opportunity for people to feel like they play a significant personal role in achieving that vision yeah well that's going to be i guess the last word thank you bob i really appreciate your time today and I know you and I are in other fights together, and I look forward to them. It's always a pleasure to pleasure talk to, to you and to work with you. Always yeah. pleasure to be with you, and uh, uh, you have a great show. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care. Take care. All right, everybody, that was Bob Creamer, a fabulous organizer, strategist, has been at this for a long time. Um, and we're going to take a break, and when we come back, your calls at 773-763-9278. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, folks, it's time to hear from you at 773-763-9278. We've talked about many things in the last couple hours, most of which were broadly couched in the context of the change from the baby boomer generation to uh, what follows and all that that means. And I'm really, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on all of that, starting with Jim in Chicago. Hi, Edwin. How are you? All I can say is that I don't think there's much future in predicting the future. The only person I think that's captured human nature that's consistent is probably Shakespeare in the late 16th century by pointing <laughs> out 
murder, jealousy, greed, uh, every every flaw in human nature. I don't think anything's ever going to change in that regard. But uh, I recall we born in the fifties, and I read uh, you know future. The future. This is the future in 50 years. When you're 50 years old, this will be. You'll have a four-day work week. You'll have all this leisure time. There'll be more affluence. <laughs> it's turned into a nightmare. You know what I mean? So I, mean, I haven't worked four days ever. I mean, are you no, kidding me? I either, no, either have I or nobody I've ever known has worked four days. But that was yeah. the future in the in the 50s. You know, you were going to have this affluence, and you were going to have this leisure time, and a medicine, uh, you know, you'd have uh, free medicine, and, uh, you know, people would be uh, altruistic and empathetic. But, I mean, I guess you're, you're either born with those things or you, you strive for those things. Yeah. Before the sun, before the, you know, before the sun finally t- turns us into a center. But, anyway, great show as usual, Edwin, and you take care. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Okay, Rose, you are next at 773-763-9278. Hey, hey, everyone. Hey, my uh, question isn't specifically about how things have changed in attitude. It, I guess it kind of is, maybe specifically in, in terms of like... Um, the Whatever's on your mind. That, yeah, and that yep. whole thing. Um, so there is some intersection there, but I was going to ask you, is it almost a fool's errand, just knowing what's going on, even in Illinois with assault weapons ban and across the country, is it almost a fool's errand to even try to get um, sensible, like an assault weapons ban, high magazine capacity ban um, at the federal level, just knowing that there's always going to be challenges by these gun rights groups and the Supreme Court's always probably going to strike it down. Is it even worth trying to get it at the federal level? And how did that one last for those 10 years where we had one? Was it because of our we, Supreme Court at the time? No, the law lapsed and the Republicans didn't uh, re-up it. Um, so it is possible. Um, and, you know, um, in this last Congress, they passed gun legislation for the first time in a generation. It was not big gun legislation, right? It will save some lives. And I give them a lot of credit for it. But it was nowhere near what you're asking for. And frankly, things that we need for the carnage in our cities, which goes beyond assault weapons. But But there's hope. And there's hope because... Even some of the Republicans who, you know, have been uh, NRA followers forever, they took this tiny little step in the last Congress, and that little step did not cost them their jobs, right? So they've learned that you might be able actually to do something on this issue, and, and politically you don't pay this huge price. So not at all, Rose. Let's stay with it. Let's keep pushing it. Our kids' lives depend on it, um, and, and we cannot give up this fight. America is such a crazy outlier in the whole world. There's nothing like this. I mean, exactly. And, and these people are right. so entrenched with that the whole Second Amendment. Second Amendment. A good friend of mine has several um, family members who are um, police officers, and every time something comes up, something horrific with assault weapons and the whole weaponry thing. And I'll say to him, I'll say, oh, my God, they should do something. And he'll say, second amendment, second amendment. It's almost like automatic with them. And I'm like, oh, my God, how can I feel um, more worried about your family member being shot and killed than you are? And they're just 
so dug into that. So it's it's frightening, but maybe there's some change in the future. So we'll see. Uh, there's hope, Rose. I mean, you know, it wasn't that long ago that police officers around the country supported an assault weapon ban because they're the ones who are out on the street. Right. They supported gun control measures, sensible ones, until, uh, you know, until this sort of wave of right wing radicalization happened, you know, in the last uh, 10 years or so. So maybe we get them back. The country becomes sane again. I mean, we do have to we do have to. The Republicans are in the middle of a civil war on their side. And a lot depends on where it comes out, you know, because. Great majorities of America support banning assault weapons. Great majorities of America um, uh, are, are really upset with the agenda that you hear from the MAGA side. They just have control of a lot of levers of government, right? But not majorities. And there's something very powerful in America about majorities. We just have to keep speaking and keep fighting. We will break through this. That's true. Thanks for your thoughts. Take care. Really appreciate, really appreciate you listening and calling. Okay, folks, it's 773-763-9278, and I'm taking your calls. I want to say um, that I, I, I don't want to go back to uh, the very beginning of this show, but I, th- these issues of generational change and of differences between millennials and um, baby boomers was really profound, particularly in, uh, in the, in the, you know, the relationship to immigrants. I mean, I, I mean, so much of it was interesting, but that really interested me. I was sort of surprised that baby boomers are one or two generations removed from, uh, from immigrant, uh, parents and grandparents and that, um, because of changes, uh, in the law after that, the next generation is much more diverse and much more um, uh, related to closer to the time of immigration into the country. So in some ways, a throwback two generations back in that kind of I'm coming here. I got a job to do. I got to find a way to make it in this new country and that kind of energy. Um, it, and it just brings up again and again and again for me the need to do something about immigration in Congress. You know, I mean, the Republicans don't want us to do anything about immigration because they'd rather go stand at the border, have a press conference and yell at people. Right. Seems crazy. Um, uh, because we came really close to getting an immigration bill passed. Senator Dick Durbin in Illinois has pushed for this for, I don't know, 20 years. Republican Senator John McCain was close to getting one. I don't know. 15 years ago, you know, we could do this, but but like all things, the progress that we need to make, we have to break through this MAGA morass to get there. And um, I worry, I really do worry. And again, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but I worry that, that we have now a majority in the U.S. House that does not want America to address its problems, right? Because if we fail to address our problems, then discontent grows, then the ability to say, you know what, democracy is not working. Maybe we need something else is a little bit bigger. Um, uh, but, you know, um, 
That's the thing that Roosevelt uh, warned us about. And we've talked about this before, that the vital force of democracy has to work day and night by peaceful means to move the country forward, or we plant the seeds for a, um, you know, a growth of fascism in our own land. That's what he said. And um, I think that is something we really do have to consider when these guys will not move on all of the legislation that we know we need to do to be healthy from the debt ceiling right to uh, immigration. Gosh, these are big issues, and they're not that complicated. Here's the thing. They're not that complicated. We have we have vast majorities that agree in America on what we should do on many of these issues, whether it's reproductive choice or uh, even immigration. Vast majorities of great guns, as you just heard. We can't get it done because a small group in America has outsized power and they're not interested in giving it up. Uh, Dana, what's on your mind? Well, hello, Edwin. Um, what's on my mind is that um, my heckles go up every time I hear people talking about the generational stuff that Strauss and Howe introduced all many years ago now. Because we always forget about the silent generation and Gen X. We always seem to talk about baby boomers like myself and millennials. And there's a lot of other people in there as well. There sure are. Um, we're not, we baby boomers are not the only ones who are contributing to this. And I agree that we are the big pig going to the snake. But let's remember that, um, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember who did the statistics, but the GI generation was Democrat, voted Democratic. And the silent generation, who Mitch McConnell represents pretty well, was Republican. Baby boomers, by and large, were supposed to be Democrats, and Gen X is largely supposed to be Republican, and then Millennial will, of course, be Democratic. Um, so um, I think we've got things a little skewed here, and I think it's the same reason that um, we talk about Dems in disarray. I think it's been a PR stunt, to tell you the truth. I don't think, I think baby boomers and the term baby boom has been used as a cudgel as opposed to like really looking at what's going on. What do you well, think? okay, so that's really interesting. Um, this, just for those of you who are listening, the silent generation is a term for the, for the folks who are, you know, not the generation that fought in World War II, but not yet baby boomers. Um, you know, what's really interesting is um, three of our U.S. presidents were born within 66 days of each other. And that would be Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush, right? And we've only had 45 presidents, and three of them were born within a couple months of each other. That's how sort of big the, that generation was. We've had four um, baby boomer presidents. Um, so who was the fourth one? The fourth baby boomer president. You're stretching mm-hmm. um well, it, it has to be Joe Biden, doesn't it? It's not. Isn't it interesting? It's Barack Obama. And oh. Joe Biden is a silent generation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> interesting, I, right? We've got Barack Obama, yes. And yeah. then also what's going on is let's remember that um, Kevin McCarthy was born in 1965. He's on the swing. He might be a Gen X. And a lot of the 
the trouble that's going trouble. Well, a lot of the things that are going on in the country right now is because Gen X is actually the generation that's beginning to take over the reins of power. Not mm-hmm. just beginning, but they're, they're well into taking over the reins of power. Yeah, I just, you know, the issues are are interesting. I mean, they go to, like, what happens to all the homes that people own when they age out of them and they want to sell them? Who's going to get them? You know, and, and, and will young people buy them or are they not what they want? And do they have, you know, so there are issues of the marketplace and what's going to happen. I mean, it's just, it's a big, complicated thing. And I don't, you know, and, and I don't want to... Um, uh, speak for Phil Bump, whose book we talked about earlier, and you were clearly paying attention because the pig going through the snake, um, you had to be paying attention for that. Um, th- those big issues are... When Ronald Reagan and uh, what's-his-name were talking about the pig going through the snake, I wasn't paying attention to Social Security, but now mm-hmm. I am. And um, I, you know, I paid for my parents, my parents paid for my grandmother, and they complained about it all the time. Um, but uh, I didn't complain about paying um, for the people ahead of me, and it was—it's it's not a Ponzi scheme; it's an insurance scheme. When we're speaking of Social Security, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you know, also when I was that age, I didn't really think too much about buying a house. I never, as a matter of fact, thought I would own a house. But oddly enough, now I do, and I think a certain amount of this is not to diminish the fun of the uh, economic problems that we're having. Because I really feel for a lot of my um, millennial and post-millennial people that I work with, um, you know, they're, they're having a hard time. I'm not diminishing that. But, you know, I don't want to say, oh, I, I don't want to fall for the dent in disarray, um, uh, you know, that all those kind of memes. You know, we, we can't exactly predict, as one of your guests said, you know, stay out of the prediction business. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, there's that, that uh, phrase about some kind of window that uh, where you, what you look at, you know, is skewed one way or another. And I think we've really skewed it one way because um, I think we're the victims of a, a very large social engineering program. And we start out with the, the Heritage Foundation is one of the people, you know, or one of the groups that, that mm-hmm. you know, like two. This has been social, socially gener- um, engineered. Well, Dana, I don't uh, think Dems are in disarray. I think Dem- Dems are better organized than we've been in many, many years. I think the performance in the last election cycle was stunning. And it and it was, you know, young people um, and uh, older folks all together working very hard, um, uh, using all those means, you know, going door to door, but also all the stuff online and it made a huge difference. So Correct. I don't think Dems are in disarray. No, I do no, no, think no, no, one no, of my no, callers I'm made saying, it clear. No, there's a no, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that Dems are in disarray. I'm saying that that is the meme that has been put into. I see. Yeah, no, we are not in disarray. We probably never were. Um, but unfortunately, even we started listening to that stuff that gets put out by various platforms. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. Yeah. And well, the Republicans are in disarray now, yes. and they know it. And that's they know true. it. And if, if that same kind of mindset that says, well, if we tell everybody that baby boomers are the, to blame for this, that Dems are in disarray, that this is this and that's that, we have to, we have to sort of disrupt that. Um, no. That no. I think you're doing a very good job doing it. 
No, and, and forgive me, I don't want to blame baby boomers. I do think enormous progress was made during the era of the baby boomers. I do. Not The job isn't anywhere near done, right? No. But baby boomers, I mean, it's a different country and in many ways a better country. But I go back to the very beginning of the show, you know, when I played uh, uh, the Crosby, Stills, Nash Young song, Our House, right? Our House, a very, very fine house with two cats in the yard, right? You know that song, and I do, because we're a we're certain age, right? <clears throat> but when I listened to it, I hadn't listened to it in a long time, and then he died, and I was playing it, and my, my millennial kids were like, what is that music? I've never heard it before, which was a surprise <laughs> to me. Um, yeah. But I, now I hear it, and that house doesn't feel like it's inclusive to me. You, I listen to it now with different ears, you know, that's a that's a suburban house with two cats in the yard. It, it, it's interesting. It never, really, it never really was inclusive per se, um, because that was kind of what I used to call the Campbell Soup Revolution. Because all of my friends yep. back in the late 60s and early 70s, though we were all about social change and revolution, but we would still go home and make Campbell's uh, Soup and, you know, watch TV. And, you know, boy, the great revolutionaries that we were. Um, we didn't envision the fact that, you know, there's going to have to be some sac- sacrifice to all this. Things are going to change. And, and um, well, let's just leave it there. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, I found that really interesting. Anyway, I really appreciate your calling, and I really appreciate your listening. Is this, uh, this is the first time we've talked. Is, have, you, have you been listening for a while? I've been listening since you started. Oh, my. And this is only the first time you've called? Well, I... Didn't want to crowd it your way. <laughs> Always welcome. Always welcome. And thank you for thank you for um, listening. I hope you enjoy it. I do. I do. All right. You have a good one. Okay. You too. All right, folks. I'm at seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. I think I'm supposed to tell you. I need to tell you that uh, WCPT is having a mayoral forum. And there are tickets available. I don't actually know how to tell you how to get them, though. But if you go to our website uh, at WCPT820.com, there'll be information on how you can get tickets if you're a Chicagoan, that is, uh, or live close to it and you want to come to Chicago for a mayoral forum because we are in the midst of a mayoral election here in Chicago. Um, And... uh, yeah, you know, Chicago mayor's election, it's not like all the ones we always talk about, right? Um, because uh, they're all Democrats mostly, and the issues are very different than the national political ones. But on the national ones, um, I'm confident, I don't know about you, but I'm confident we have turned a corner. Um, and yet, and yet, we are going to see with this debt ceiling, Right. Even the right-wing business groups in the country and, uh, are, are terrified, as correctly as they should be, um, of default. They can't imagine that Congress would be that crazy to default on, uh, on the debt. Um, it would disrupt everybody's lives, everybody's. Um, and we Democrats are pretty clear we're not going to default on the debt. But who's it up to? Right? Who's it up to? The Republicans are saying, well, we'll only, we'll only uh, do this thing if you cave on Social Security and Medicare, if you change the country for a small minority of empowered people that thinks that because they have power, they can impose their will on all the rest of us. 
uh, or bring the entire country crashing down um, with a default, that is appalling. And that's where we are, right? With a, with a minority in the House um, that is determined not to govern, but to convince you and me and everybody else that we cannot govern. Really terrifying. Ron, what do you think of that? Ron, turn down your radio, buddy. Hello, Edwin. Yes. Hello. Hi. Yes, I'm here. I wanted to. I want. Yes, I wanted to talk about uh, white supremacy in this country and how it uh, ties into what what's happening in, in uh, Ukraine right now. Now, after the Civil okay. War. Okay. The North won. The North won, and we were in control up until Reconstruction. And then it went back to the South taking control of their own states. And eventually they took control of the country. And they rule the country to this day, the white supremacists. And they're about ready to take complete control, it seems, or they're never going to stop trying. I mean, look at the Supreme Court. Even with a black justice, Clarence Thomas, he is still a white supremacist. Plain and simple. Now, going back, going to World War II, our policy of white supremacy prior to World War II was adopted by the Nazis. Okay, except they they did they went a little bit further. They went to uh, slave labor to the to the death. Okay. Now, Mm -hmm. after World War II, now even before World War II ended in 1944. The SS was in negotiations with the OSS and General Electric. This is in the book. You can read it yourself. The, the hidden Nazi, Kelmer was his name. He, he built a, the concentration camps. He built the gas chambers. He was an architect. He didn't, he didn't lay the bricks, but he laid the groundwork, the brains. He built the V1 system, the V2 system, the jet propulsion system. They had an atomic bomb, the SS, okay, because they had their own separate from the, from the Wehrmacht, and they had priority over everything, okay? And, but as if it's 44, they were in negotiations with General Electric and with Alan Dulles, head of the OSS, to give everything. In 1944, while they were blowing the hell, hell out of the, the allies of the British with their V-1 rockets, they were in negotiations to give everything to the, the United States if they were able to be turned over with no, no war crimes trial, lock, stock, and barrel. And the same thing went for G- General Gellin, who was head of the SS Gestapo in the Eastern Russia and the Eastern Front. He made the same negotiations. I will give you all my information, all my agents, but no war crimes trials. And these were war, war criminals of the worst, worst order in the Soviet Union, okay? Rounding up okay, Ron, you, you were going to connect Russia. that to what's going on here today. And I think to Ukraine yes, and Ukraine Make the connection and Ukraine. Make- so in other words, we took the and general Gellin became the highest ranking West German general and NATO general. So in other words, a Nazi war criminal became our top NATO general. And with his philosophy and we we went through the Cold War, we went through the the, uh, the fighting the colonial period, which gave every the same rule that it's the Nazis that were in control. And to this to this day, we are on the border with Ukraine. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing from, from World War II. The ultimate goal of the West was to surround the Soviet Union, Russia, whatever you want, the Bolsheviks. And they're, we're almost completing that. But now we have this stumbling block of atomic bombs, okay? But all this push for war, war, more, more tanks, more, when, when, when is the negotiations going to start? 
Edwin, when is uh, in Ukraine? I, you know what? I think there I think there um, there's a lot of push from diplomats in the world to to see Ukraine and Russia talk, um, um, not to impose a settlement, but to get the two of them to, to talk. The costs of war continue to get, be high on both sides. Terrible, terrible costs. Right. And I don't think I don't I mean, I don't I don't see a scenario where um, Vladimir Putin doesn't um, come away with something. Um, I wish he wouldn't, because the the idea that you can I mean, the, the thing that we imposed after World War Two was a rules based system. Now, you may say you don't like the rules, but it was a rules based system as opposed to a I'm stronger than you. Therefore, I can eat uh, your country. Um, and Russia has uh, has repeatedly said those rules don't apply to us. We're going to eat countries. I'm very worried about that. But the costs of war are, 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 are as they have always been, appallingly high. And we and and both sides, I hope, will find a way to de-escalate and make peace. Um, you yeah, know, yeah, a, a, a just peace. So thank you for your call. And look, we've run we've run uh, up against the clock here. I want to thank all of you for your time and attention today. And um, I will see you next week. Uh, enjoy it out there. Stay warm. Take care. <laughs>